Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is episode three, My Journey Podcast. Let's rock and roll, baby. So at the end of episode two, I spoke about transitioning from junior basketball in, in, in Melbourne to then preparing to go to the AIS. A small little tidbit before that was school holidays, end of 2001, the summer holidays in Australia, which are Christmas holidays. I used to go on train with a, a NBL, a National Basketball League team called the Victoria Titans. We're now defunct. They went bankrupt a year or two after I was I was down there training with them. I was a train-on player. I wasn't paid. was just basically invited to come down there and help fill numbers when they needed. Myself and Marco and a few other local uh, kind of players that were half decent used to go down there and we would do individuals with Kevin Gorgian, who was Brian's brother, and Kevin now runs the Box Hill High School Basketball Academy. So he would do individuals with us in the mornings. So we'd do that. A lot of the professionals on the Victoria Titans that didn't play a lot or the younger guys, they'd come in and work out with us. So I'd give them, you know, some some numbers to do to do four and four, five and five, shooting drills, all that fun stuff. And then we'd lift weights. And then by the time we're done with that, after an hour or two, the Victoria Titans, the actual, you know, team, the rostered guys, uh, the stars would come in and they'd have a training session. And then a few of us, like myself, got asked to participate in that training session to give them extra numbers would be the essentially the second team or third team that was whoever they were playing that following week we'd um basically be that that rival team running their sets so they can prepare for that team so it was a great experience for me um, just being part of a professional environment even though i wasn't really part of the team it was an experience that i cherished and, and got a lot out of i still remember going to those training sessions and Daryl McDonald was on the team, who was a star import. He'd been in the NBL for around about a decade at that point, and I was a huge fan of the North Melbourne Giants growing up, and that's the team that he first started with. I had his jersey. I had um, He came out to my school as a young fellow when I was in primary school and signed the back of it, so that was surreal. Other stars like Jason Smith, who was an Australian boomer and a you know a really good really good guy who helped me throughout my career numerous times. Had Tony Ronaldson, who was one of the best NBL players at the time. Chris Anstey, who just came, I believe, just came back from um, his stint in the US or was floating there thereabouts. So he was he was around. Um, so it was a star-studded team. Jamal Mosley was there, an import. Funnily enough, he's now an assistant coach with the Dallas Mavericks and highly touted to be one of the next candidates to get a head coaching job over there. And he has signed or committed to, to, to coach the Australian Boomers as an assistant coach to Brian Gorgian. So a lot of relationships there that were built at a young age that I would go full circle in life, right? So I used to go down there and, and train with them. And it was whether you got a couple of minutes on the court with those guys or you know, 30, 40 minutes. It was an awesome experience. Got a lot out of it. One thing I remember was getting absolutely bullied by Chris Anstey at the time. I was a, a beam pole, 88, 90 kilos, just all bones and skinny and couldn't really wrestle with those guys too much. I mean, Chris was never the biggest of guys strength-wise, but still manly compared to to what I was at that point. And Tony Ronaldson was very strong. Jamal Mosley was pretty strong. So, you know, they beat me up a lot, but Chris kind of, I guess he used to get frustrated with me. I was that young fella that um, just had a lot of energy, was constantly moving around and, and giving effort and probably hit him a couple of times by accident just from from the way I played. And I can understand now that I'm an older guy and, 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 and being in that position that, I mean, Chris is, and most guys on that professional team, 
their A to B, their Monday to Friday is just getting right for that game on Saturday or Sunday. So it's like, let me get my work in. I don't want to get any niggles. I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to have anything bothering me going into those games. And on the flip side, you had a young guy like me who that was my game. The weeks, the, those w- weeks trainings were something I took very seriously. So I'd be going like a bat out of hell, balls to the wall. And so Chris, one day, I still remember I got a couple of offensive rebounds on him, tipped him in and... The next time down, I went for a board and he just bowed me straight in the face. I went down like a sack of shit and I kind of let that slide as an accident, whatever, whatever, whatever. A couple of guys, I think, I remember Pera Vasiljevic, who was a, a bench player, and I think Jason Smith kind of had a quick words to Chris and just said, man, chill out, you know, he's a young fellow, whatever. And then we had a shoot around one day. Um, that It was a game day for the for the Victoria Titans and um, I went down to what was, I think at that point, Vodafone Arena. I don't know what it's called now. Keeps changing names, but it, the big arena in Melbourne where the basketball games were. And we had a shoot around in the morning and we we're doing some five-on-five kind of non-contact. And um, I guess I was up in Chris's grill playing defense and he had had the ball in the post and basically he's back to me and, and turned with his elbows up and cracked me in the, in the temple. I went, you know, knees buckled for a second and then I went through a, a crossroad of, of um, childhood bogues where I was – I went through thinking I want to get up and punch this guy in the chin, um, put one on him, but I'll probably get my ass kicked back because this is a grown man. But also, Brian Gorgian has invited me to be part of this group. All the other kids at that point, no one else was really invited to come along. It was just me. This was months on down the track, and I don't want to ruin this opportunity. So I didn't fire back. I kind of just unfortunately took it. Jason Smith, Perovicevic again ran in and were about to – you know, go at Chris Anstey for, for for what he did, and it was it was something I I um I had a grudge for a while, but with regards to Chris, and I had him essentially in a little mental black book that when I, whenever I meet this guy again after I'm back from college and I've worked on my body, I, I'm going to go at him and I'm going to give it back to him. And um, he didn't play in the 2004 Beijing uh, 2004 Athens Olympic team that I was in, so I didn't get a chance there. And then he didn't play in 2006. In the world championships, I think he was injured both both years. I was having surgery from his from his club escapades. So by the time I played with him, it was two thousand and eight, and I kind of kind of let let it all go. And I guess just you know things a young fella goes through when you when you're coming up through the ranks. There's always someone that, that gives you a few wake up calls. And I I hold no animosity to Chris to this day. When I was younger, I, I kind of did, but it's all gone. And I'm, I'm friends with Chris. I have got no issue with him. I've worked on him, worked with him um, on numerous. You know, podcasts and and different basketball related activities in Melbourne. So no no hard feelings there, but just an interesting tidbit of of a bit of a wake up call I got from Chris. But I remember Pero and Jason Smith stuck up for me, and I remember that. And it was um it was pretty cool to have you know his teammates essentially sticking up for a young fella. So I still remember that to this day. And I tried to then do similar things to when I felt young guys were getting the rough end of the stick, whether it was in my NBA career or, or NBL or national team, just to make sure that the older fellas aren't aren't being too hard. Look, I mean, there's there's, there's banter and a, a bit of initiation that young guys have to go through, but um, that kind of stuff obviously wasn't, wasn't great. So anyway, I liked it so much that I remember at one point I had a meeting with Gorgian and was like, sign me up. I just want to play. I just want to play professionally um, at that point. If you remember in episode one and two, I spoke about if, if I received money for playing basketball, that was it. I was I was happy. And I met with Brian Gorgian. I still remember it. And I said, look, I believe David Barlow was was their young guy that was kind of coming up up through the ranks. And he, he had dropped out of school, I think, in, in, in year 11 or something along those lines early and became a full-time professional with with the, with the Titans as a development player. And, and I saw that as like the pinnacle. And I was like, I want to do that. And Brian was like, nah, you got bigger and better things coming. Stay the course. Go to the AIS. You never know what, what can happen. And 
that was funnily enough where the University of Utah bridge extended because there was a, a fellow named Ken Shields from Canada, a Canadian basketball legend, a coach. He, he's an old fellow now. He'd be probably in his 80s or close to. He was a good friend of Brian Gorgens and he'd come down to Victorian Tider tra- trainings from, from Canada as a guest coach. And then he was also involved with our national team as a guest coach numerous times. And he was good friends with Rick Majerus at the University of Utah. And that's kind of how that conduit formed about them recruiting me. And we'll get to that a little bit later, but just a tidbit on, on how that all works. It's, it's all networked and who you know and, and all that kind of stuff. And I knew nothing about college at that point. They, they kind of introduced me early and I um, then was in touch with Utah from from then on in. But um, yeah, just an interesting tidbit before I went to the AS. So then, then you, you get to late January and my mum and I packed the car up and basically all my clothes, as much stuff as I could bring, I managed to coerce my dad into letting me take the, the house the home computer, which was great. So I could have a computer in my room up there. And I took my hi-fi stereo, you know, the old school bubble speakers that attached to a unit that has a, you know, five CD stacker and you thought you were the coolest kid on the block. Pretty loud, those things. They could be menacing. The neighbors hated you up. Took that up. Couldn't take a TV. The AIS men's basketball program had a rule where no TVs were allowed in your room. And at the time, it was frustrating because every other sport had, they had their own TVs in their room. We were the only ones that weren't allowed. And you didn't understand that at the time, but from a psychological point of view and a team building point of view, I look at it now and it was genius because we'll get to the way the residences and the blocks and the living quarters work in the AS in a few minutes, but there was a common room in all of the blocks. So everyone had their own room and then there was a common room, which was essentially like a lounge room for that whole block. And that's where the TV was. You could have one TV and it was in the common room. And I guess their thinking behind it was, if these guys want to watch TV, they need to go, they'll go to the common room and they'll all hang out and, and banter and talk shit and, and build culture and build camaraderie and friendships and, and that's a part of team building and it was genius. It, it worked for the most part. You had three or four guys at a minimum on any given day when, when everything was done for the day, hanging out in there, talking. And a lot of times the TV ended up being an afterthought. It was just on in the background and we'd be talking about NBA games, you know, even footy games. We all had different footy teams, whether it was rugby league or AFL. We'd all be in there watching sporting stuff as well. So it was um, it was pretty genius. So anyway, anyway, packed the car up. Old man didn't come. He was working. So drove up, long drive to Canberra, seven, eight-hour drive from, um, from Melbourne and get up there. And, and then it was... Yeah, it was un- unpacking into my room. The rooms, basically, to break it down for you, a square box, probably you know three four by three by three four meters, something like that. Like essentially a jail cell, maybe a little bit bigger. I'm not equating it to jail. I'm just size wise. You had a, a single bed. You had a study desk. You had a small little wall heater, and then you basically had a one massive piece of cabinetry, which one side had a, a double-door wardrobe. In the middle was a sink, mirror, and then a medicine cabinet. That was your room. That was it. You had nothing else in there. Bare bones, but it was all we needed. And for me, it was sensational. It was your own room. So we then would share bathrooms. So think about a, a residence where they just go straight up. So you walk up 10 stairs and you get to a landing. There's three rooms. And you turn left and go back up the other way. Go up 10 steps, get to a landing. There's another three rooms. And then Basically, there was 13 rooms in the whole block, so about four or five landings. And then there was, I believe, four bathrooms for the whole block. So you had to kind of schedule in showering sometimes. You had to wait. It was just a part of communal living, essentially. That's what that's what was interesting about it initially was just living amongst your teammates, seeing them every day, every morning, whenever you go out of your room, and then having to share, share quarters, essentially. 
the laundry, washing your own shit was was an adjustment. Obviously, coming from from a family and where mum and dad do everything for you, especially you know a Eastern European family, the cooking, the cleaning, you don't you don't generally do any of that stuff. Um, you help out with it, but you know, let's be honest, at the end of the day, your mum's going to do it for you. So there was a communal laundry for all the athletes. The whole whole campus. We'll get to all the sports in a second, but you'd have to go in and and you have to be organised. You have to go in and put your washing in, time it, come back an hour later, then move it from the the washer to the dryer, then come back an hour later and take it. And the, the guys and girls that weren't organised, if you left your washing in there too long, you, you know, as you know, you leave it in wet water for a while, it starts to smell. Or if you don't transfer it over, if you don't if you don't get it that same day, you might not have stuff for the next day to wear at training. So there were some notorious teammates that. You could tell weren't washing their clothes as often as they should because they stunk. And but like I said, that, that straight away taught you or, organization and managing your time and 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 being on it outside of basketball. It was then a dining hall which probably sat about a hundred people. It was a buffet style. You walk in, you grab a tray and a plate. There's a salad bar, and then there's all all the meals they had. The problem with the dining hall for basketball, at least, was we were one of the only sports that had to put on weight or keep weight. We're all skinny bean poles for the most part. Young, 16, 17, like myself. I was around 90 kilos. I was trying to get to 1, 105, you know, to, to wrestle down there with the big fellas. And the meals were, you know, catered towards gymnasts and swimmers and, and athletes that needed to drop weight or maintain. So the food wasn't great from a, a taste point of view. It was, you know, dehydrated, um, all the fat taken out, the flavor. And coming from a essentially a WOG family, it was, that was a very hard adjustment for me, like just eating bare bones, bland rice and pasta with canned, you know, marinara sauce or whatever it was. And, you know, so you had to kind of figure out ways of making things. We try to make, get some bread and some cheese and different things. And that's when I learned to put tomato sauce on almost everything because I needed some flavor and that was all they really had there. So I just I'd be putting tomato sauce on almost everything I ate, which was interesting. The place place was secure as can be as a whole. It was, you think about walking through, let's say, an, a small little office square hub. You walk through an automatic door, a sensor door like a shopping center. You get through that automatic door, there's a front desk and a little lounge. And then you go through another automatic door, which then takes you to the residence area. When you walk to the residence area, you think of a U-shape. And along that U is the residences. So you've got 20 of those dorms or residences or blocks or resis, whatever you want to call it, that go straight up and they're about you know two, three meters wide, um, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit bigger, and that's that's your block. And there was about 20 of them for different sports. So in the middle, the cutout area of the U was all grass. So it was a massive open field and a bit of space and greenery, and you were fully fenced in that area. Everywhere you'd go, you'd have a swipe card that was obviously had a code that went to your name. So they would know where you went and when you went and all that kind of stuff. So wherever you swiped, that, that swipe card would allow you to get into the residences. It, it would allow you to get into your your basketball center if you're a basketball player. Now, your car wouldn't work if, if you were trying to get into the pools. Your car generally wouldn't work. Or if you were trying to get into the gymnastics area and you're a basketball, that wouldn't work and vice versa. So your cards were coded to, to let you go exactly where you needed. So for us, that was residence. For us, that was recovery center. For us, that was the physio center and the dining hall. And that was basically it, right? So they knew where you were going. The kids that were under 18, like myself, there was a curfew, 10 p.m. back in your rooms on weeknights and 12.30 on weekends. If you were overage, you could kind of go and come as you please, as long as your coach didn't find out you were out all night um, doing silly things. 
when you had training the next morning, which was most days. But so they it made th- it made it hard if you wanted to get out. I mean, I had a, I had two girlfriends, not at the same time, but um, my first year I had a girlfriend, and then I had a different girl the second year, and it made it challenging to go and see them at times. So we'll get to that a little bit later of how I facilitated that. But you know, you know, damn straight, I was going to find a way to figure out all the ins and outs of getting getting in and out of there. The sports on on that lived on campus, obviously men's basketball, women's basketball. We had a women's netball team. We had a men's volleyball team. We had boys and girls gymnastics was interesting because a lot of these athletes were 11, 12 years old, really small kids rolling around. And it's kind of confronting because I guess sometimes we all do it tough being away from home and homesick. But you know these these young kids were were doing it at a very early age, still in primary school, some of them. So that was interesting. There was men's and women's water polo, men's and women's swimming men's soccer, and then athletics was a mix of all different events. So you had some archer, archery people, you had some um, runners, you had some some throwers in different disciplines. So they were all living um, amongst us. Basketball had its own block because we had a team of, of 12. So we had, there was 13 rooms and, and it was us and a block supervisor. Each block had a supervisor that would make sure everything was going okay and, and they'd live on, on campus there. And then obviously individual sports would be mixed with other individual sports, but generally team blocks were team blocks. So there was, we knew there was a soccer block, a basketball block, a women's basketball block, a men's basketball, a netball block, and you kind of knew who, what was where, right? So that were sports, awful scholarship. There were some athletes that would live off campus. Generally, once they got to 19, 20, 21, I believe there, there were some opportunities for funding those athletes to live off campus and and be responsible adults. I guess the the on campus stuff was more suited to your sixteen to nineteen year olds, um, and it made sense too. Like I would have hated living off campus and having a commute because you're basically, you know, we'll go through the schedule in a second. You're there all day, just doing doing all kinds of different things. So to be driving backwards and forwards just wouldn't make sense. Now some kids had cars if they were of age for a license. So kids from South Australia, New South Wales, they could get their license earlier than Victoria. So I couldn't I couldn't have a car because I wasn't 18. So my father ended up selling that that red Commodore that I had, ended up selling that, um, which was which was fine. I didn't, I didn't know until I got home and it was gone. Um, I was pretty disappointed because I thought that'd be my, my forever car, but little did I know I'd have an opportunity to get some some nicer cars along the way. The one thing I learned at the AIS was was just just from from treating people for the most part nicely. I, I definitely got into it with, with some people, um, but I try to be respectful of of mainly the it wasn't so much the the people that were employed by the AIS like the actual advisors and coaches it was more the everyday people I related to more the, the cleaners that came in and the chefs and and the people that really weren't acknowledged they were just behind the scenes um, I always tried to talk to them and there was a Macedonian lady named Sveta I still remember her name and on our team we had we had a Macedonian kid and a, and a Serbian kid and myself so we kind of bonded with that whole teamwork mentality at times I'd always banter with this lady and she was an older lady and she'd always you know how's the girls going, uh, all that kind of stuff. And I'd ask her, like, how's your husband? Is he treating you right? All that kind of stuff. We, we, we banter and have a bit of a laugh, but I just gave the time of day. And I didn't, I didn't expect anything in return. It wasn't a case of doing this for a reason. It was just it was fun to talk to someone. And she reminded me a little bit of, of my mum and dad with, with the mentality and the jokes and all that kind of stuff. And just by doing that, um, so when they would come and clean your room once a week and vacuum and do all that stuff, I'd get an extra two towels. I'd get three towels instead of one. I'd get new sheets when I wasn't supposed to. Um, I'd get you know a little bit uh, perk every now and then. And then this lady used to work in the kitchen as well sometimes at the back. And I'd come in for breakfast, and they'd have you know the scrambled eggs that are all kind of slopped into into one big one big batch where you're kind of half watery, half runny. And she'd um, give me a little 
little chirp or a little whistle come over here like what do you want me to make you and and um yeah three eggs sunny side up please and she'd make them for me and one of the perks of just being nice to someone behind the scenes which i didn't expect so that was that was awesome and it helped um every now and then she'd bring us some some pickled gherkins or cucumbers as you call them um the, the old wog stuff you get from a wog deli so she was awesome i remember that and just the beauty of being nice to people that you don't expect anything from sometimes works out so now we'll get to, to the schedule of the AIS. It was a very full-on schedule. It was um, There was no bullshitting. And most people that go to the AIS before you get there, you think you've made it. Everyone looks at you as like, oh, lucky you, you're going to the AIS. Those people have no idea what's next. So you go from your club team and a bit of normality with home life. You're not training as much. I was training a lot at that point with Steve and doing individuals, but this was even a step up from that. They, they basically filled your day from morning till night. On weekdays, you, you really didn't have time to, to scratch your ass at times. And that was by design, I believe. And it was it was unbelievable because once you got to the next level after that, it, w- it just seemed much easier. So I'll run you through. Basically, a Monday to Friday looked like this. Three times a week in the morning, you'd have about a 45-minute shooting session. So that was just straight shooting with a team. No ball handling skills, no one-on-one, just straight shooting. We're getting up as much shots as we can in that 45 minutes. That's three times a week. That's before school. So that's about 7.30 a.m. You then have individuals two to three times a week, which would be during the day. So it'd be anywhere from you know, 10.30, 11 o'clock to about 1, 2 p.m. You'd have an individual with two other guys, generally your size. You'd go for an hour. You'd work on skills that you're lacking. You'd do one-on-one. You'd do shooting drills. You'd do all that kind of stuff, bit of conditioning. Then you'd have your team sessions five days a week. That would be at, generally at 4 p.m. when everyone's done with, with school and whatever they're doing during the day. You'd have your team session. That would then carry on to go on to do recovery, ice baths, all that. Weights would be four times a week. So that would be generally as a team and it'd generally be one of those blocks either before individuals or after individuals, but you, you, the schedule was pretty pretty on point. You then, we were taught, like I said, the ice baths, the recovery, we were taught that at an early age. Like once I got to the States in college, the US college system and just the American system in general was so far behind what we were learning in, in at the AIS that we barely had a cold tub um, when I got to the University of Utah. So we were learning all that stuff already and, and it really got emphasized in us, the, the, self, the self-recovery aspect of things. We had self-massage, which meant that every Thursday Arvo or afternoon for you Americans, it's, um, our team would show up to a massage room. One of the masseuses would come in. There'd be ten ta- you know, five tables set up. You'd partner up with a teammate. They've got massage oil and basically you'd have to massage each other 30 minutes each. So I jump on the table and my teammate, let's say it was Alex Marich, who generally was, hey man, my quads are a bit sore. So he'd massage your quads. And then once that 20, 30 minutes was up, you'd switch and oh, my calves are a bit sore, do that. And the masseuse would walk around and be like, hey mate, you know, you want to go with the fibers here or you want to avoid this area or maybe put the leg in this position, you get better better access to get into the muscle, whatever. And, and it taught us how to, how to be self-reliant. Foam rolling, Proprioception, which is ankle stability, huge in basketball. Obviously, uh, the number one injury in basketball generally is rolling an ankle, landing on someone's foot because it's a jumping sport. So we did a lot of proprioception work. And it was just about learning how to be a professional, learning how to manage yourself. Um, On top of that, there was access to physios and masseuses and and all that stuff, and you could schedule in. So there was a, a full medical ward area. They also work with just regular residents of the city to make to make money, obviously, and they also would get paid, but I assume the government or our scholarship would pay for, for physio visits and all that. But if you had tendonitis in your knees or you were sore here, you'd go in and see the physio once a week. They'd, they'd treat you, do mobilizations, massage, all that kind of stuff, and then have, have a strengthening program. And then on top of that, there was 
uh, you had to get one massage a week, which they they pushed on us to do. But that was up to you to schedule. Yeah, it just taught us how to be self sufficient and how to be organized. And if and and that was basically your day basketball wise. On top of that, for me, I was in high school. We had a deal with a local college, which I'll get to in a second. But there was a bus that went to and from the the, the local college called Lake Genadera, Lake Genadera High School. Our bus went every hour from the AIS to. To, to Lake G and it was there, an AIS bus and then there was two little minivans that would be for anyone who'd missed the main bus or if the main bus was too f- full sometimes, um, you'd go on the minivan, but basically going to and from that school all day. So you could basically, you know, the school had an agreement with AIS athletes where we could leave the school whenever we didn't have a period. Um, so sometimes you might have two classes from the morning periods and nothing till the afternoon you were allowed to leave go do some training sessions and then come back for those other two classes so like i said it was it was non-stop on top of that you got to fit in breakfast lunch and dinner which was up to you you had to be organized because if you weren't you miss a meal you go into a training session sluggish coaches ask you what the hell's going on and then once that day's over you've, you've had your team session at four o'clock you get out of there at six you do your ice bath your recovery you're out of there 6 30 have a shower go get some food you have study hall so if you were in high school you had to go to study hall from monday to thursday i think it was seven 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 thirty till 9 p.m mandatory that was your day you basically got back to your room at 9 9 30 had, had an hour or two for yourself and then you're knocked out and you, you do it all again the next day so it really was a very busy day. If you weren't organized, if you weren't motivated, if you weren't getting out of bed in the right the right mindset, you'd struggle there. And there were a lot of kids, a lot of kids that struggled and got spat out by that system just because they, they couldn't they could not comprehend everything that went with basketball, which was maintaining your body, going to school, getting, you know, being being organized to a minute. We can get your meal in and fit this in and fit that in and there was, we had kind of like a fine system, which you'd get fined, I think like five bucks or something if you were late for something or or whatever it was. And and Marty Clark, who we'll talk to a little bit later in the program, he was huge on being on time. And he, he was the one guy that really taught me. I kind of, my dad was always about being on time, but Marty was a whole nother level. So Marty was one of those, if your appointment's at nine o'clock and you show up at 8.59, you're late. You need to show up five minutes minimum early for everything. And, and that really ingrained in me. And I still do that to this day. I, I really have a problem with people being late because I think it's a respect thing, especially for us. If you've booked a physio appointment in and you show up late, it then puts that physio back for his next appointment and, and then it screws their day up and it's just disrespectful. And I think it's a very important part of, of society in general is just being on time. I think it's just a respect thing. So taught us that. Um, we'll go back to, to the school now. So the school was interesting. Obviously, having a relationship with the AIS made it work really well. But coming from St. John's Regional College and Cleveland Secondary College, both in Dandenong, St. John's was obviously the Catholic strict school that we've spoken about. It really, it really made you kind of realize how strict those schools were. And Lake G was a no uniform school. You could wear whatever you wanted. You could wear thongs. Got, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people would wear singlets. You could whatever you wanted, hats on, hats off, beanies, jewelry. Um, I remember my first week there. I put my hand up to ask the teacher a question. He said, excuse me, sir. He goes, what? Don't call me, sir. My name's David. And I was like, what? Where Where the hell am I? What planet am I on right now? And it was just a really relaxed, bare bones school, nothing fancy. They weren't too strict. Just come, learn, go home. Don't bother us too much kind of attitude. And the other thing that shocked me was I went out for lunch during lunchtime at the school one day and it was, there was kids just like walking around smoking. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And so I asked someone, and they said, yeah, you're, you're allowed to smoke on school grounds. We just, you know, 
we're against and highly advised just don't smoke near the front entry of the door when people are coming in and out of the school near the gate just come come inside the actual school premises and yeah you're free to smoke i was like i could not i could not believe where i was i was like this is this is crazy um i didn't even know schools like that existed so pretty interesting transition from from a catholic school to that but it worked well because they had they gave us flexibility the school was still pretty decent and generally, the AIS people stuck together because our schedule didn't really allow us to mingle too much with, with regular students just because we were on a ball and chain. It was like, all right, this class is over, bang on the bus, get a meal in, training session. Okay, go back to school for two more periods, bang, back on the bus, wait session. And it made things very, very interesting. It gave me time, a little bit of time though. I, I, I dated a girl that year in 2002. My first year, I dated a girl who lived local, so she had a car, so that worked out well. And then my second year, I dated a different girl. and. That um, gave me a bit of a release from the AIS when I wanted to get out, which was which is always good because you want to get out of that that compound type feeling sometimes of of being kind of locked down in, in a small little area, which was great. So kids who didn't go to school, so say you were eighteen, you'd already graduated high school when you got your AIS scholarship. You generally had to get some sort of job, whether it was around AIS campus, um, whether it was mowing the lawns, whether it was helping out at the kitchen. Generally, especially the basketball program, were pretty strict on that. They didn't want you just sitting in your room all day while half the teams at school doing stuff. You were just sitting on your ass and just rolling up to trainings. They wanted you to have that that tiring, action-packed day to, to build up your resiliency and build up what you need to build up. So some kids would be tour guides. So the AIS obviously is a you know, world-class training facility. So we'd get a lot of tours from different countries and different states and different sports that would love to come and see all the facilities there and, and some of my teammates were actual tour guides. So they'd, they'd, they'd do that as a job and get paid for it, which was kind of cool. So we get on to my first year there. Look, it was it was hard to fit in at the start. I mean, you just, the first month or so, you're just so busy and you're so, everything's new. So you kind of just have no time to think. But once it slowed down a little bit, there, there was some homesickness, uh, mainly the food, a little bit different culturally of being outside of, of the home I grew up in, which I spoke about in episode one, the Croatian home and ideals and culture, then going into the open world essentially and, and being on a team with with many different cultures and nationalities. And there were, like I said, there was a Macedonian kid and a Serbian kid and I kind of, we all kind of bonded just naturally because of the ideals and the similar funny stories about all the crazy shit our parents and grandparents used to do and all that kind of stuff. So we bonded and, and it was basically us three and then one other kid from Horsham named Aaron Bruce was kind of, that was our four. I mean, most teams have a click within a click and that was kind of the four that hung out and we were kind of the ones that caused m- m- most of the trouble um, at times. But we were a really competitive, resilient group and that carried on from, from the court at trainings to off the court sometimes to fighting to all that. And that that's part of the journey of, of building a good team and building a culture. And that's what the plan was for bringing us into the AIS. So we were in 2002 and three, but 2002 predominantly, we were the winningest team in AIS history. So we played in the Seabull, the SEABL, Southeast Australian Basketball League, which was a semi-professional league, very well-run league at that point. There were, there were a lot of people that said that, um, I don't know this because I've been playing NBL back then, but that said it was better ran than the NBL. Um, it was just very well organized. It was basically played on the Eastern Seaboard of Australia. So mainly teams from Victoria, Sydney and the ACT and yeah you basically had bench players from the NBL would go back and play for for a club and then be the man on that team and build up their off-season training every now and then you get some some actual really good starting caliber players playing in it um, you get young talent from different states so there was a lot of a lot of good players playing in it and we historically the AIS 
there was banners up there of where we'd finished for the last 10, 15 years, and it was it was generally last or second last every year. Um, didn't win many games. It was obviously the AAS used that as a development tool for their 15, 16, 17-year-olds playing against grown men, but we were the first team to come in like, oh, we're going to try to win this thing. Uh, we're going to battle, and, and we did. We ended up winning winning the, the SEABL and won a championship and then went to the Nationals um, for all the clubs, the club championship, and finished second in that. And we should have won that game. Still looking back, we're up at three-quarter time, but had a had a player on that team go a little rogue and um, jacked up a few, four or five crazy shots in a row, and they came back and beat us. But um, we were that young team that was – we weren't very liked in our league because we, we were supposed to be the whipping boys, and we weren't. We had some a bit of cockiness and a little bit of arrogance about us in a, in a positive way where we were like, no, nah, we're coming for you old blokes, like all you old you know, 25, 30-year-olds that are supposed to be good, we're coming for you. We don't care if you're older or more physical or stronger or going to try to fight us. And a lot of teams would try to fight us and cheap shot us because we were younger and try to intimidate us. But it made us so much better as a team and made us made us resilient. Um, and I, I really cherish those times of, of building that group and how it built culturally and how we got better individually. In saying we were the winningest group, we were also the most troublesome group the basketball program has had in a long, long time, I believe, could be up there ever wasn't kind of rolling around being disrespectful to people and just just being that those kind of troublemakers it was more just doing dumb shit much like I did in my childhood you know all kinds of different pranks just constantly messing with each other uh, Marty speaks about it at length in our Q&A that we were always trying to find where the boundary was whether it was basketball whether it was talking back to a coach whether it was getting into it with each other whether it was playing pranks where was the boundary and then how how close can we get over it and and if we go over it a little bit what happens and that was us and you kind of need to do that in adolescence and teenage years sometimes um, because that's how you learn that there's consequences to, to going over the boundary or doing things you're not supposed to do and vice versa there's no other way to learn other than doing that as a kid and I think in society, sometimes we get lost within that. Now, it doesn't mean you should get out of the trouble that you've caused, but you need to learn from it. And most 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 successful people have had those periods in their life. So this will be a fun part for most people. It'll be some stuff that's hilarious, some stuff that you have a little giggle at, some stuff that you think were absolute dickheads, and some stuff that's absolutely disgusting. So I'll run you through a list of shit that we used to do. Keep in mind, you've got a group of 16, 17-year-olds away from home for the first time, living in a, a residence and essentially outside of basketball, not having a whole lot of adult supervision when you're outside of your training sessions. So for some people, it's heaven. For some people, it wasn't. But um, the first thing when I got to Canberra was fireworks were legal. So I don't think it's like that today. I think they've made them illegal now, but it was one of the only states in Australia you could legally buy fireworks. So coming from my bomb-making days as a young fella and my expertise in that area, I was like, man, let's go buy some fireworks. So we used to go down to a place called Fishwick in the ACT, and that was the area for anything that was kind of deemed controversial, whether it was fireworks, whether it was porn, whether it was strippers, all that stuff, peep shows. It was all in one area in Fishwick. I'm not sure if it's like that. Any of my Canberra listeners, let me know if it still is, but it was when we were there, and we kind of knew that that was the rap that it got, but went down there for um, – just fireworks, get your mind out of the gutter. We just went down there for fireworks and bought a, a shitload of fireworks one time as a team, mainly the little bungers, the little bungers you just throw at your mate and falls under his feet and scares him. We got a few bottle rockets, which were the ones that you, you know, basically for New Year's, you know, shot out a rocket and then they blew up into 10 different rockets and went on for a minute or two. So we bought all those and we used to have a bit of a back and forth with water polo and, and the swimmers. We just never really got along with them. I think it was a cultural thing. The swimmers and the water polo kids generally 
our elite private school kids from affluent families. Now, we didn't really, I think we had one kid that was from an affluent family on our team, but most of us were, were from battling families, migrants, um, and a lot of country kids that were, were battlers. So, we just, for the most part, didn't get along with them. So, what we started doing was, I mentioned that residence area that was like a U. We used to run down at one or two in the morning with a bottle rocket, stab it in the grass in the, in the common area, right in the middle of all the residences and, and let that thing off. And it's the one that used to jam into a stake into the grass or the dirt. And then the thing would just go up in the air and go bang. And we did that to wake the swimmers up because they would have a schedule that would make them wake up at 4.30 in the morning to do all their you know, they're in the pool for three or four hours before school. So we used to just do it to mess with them. So that was a, a part of back and forth that we used to have with them and did that. We used to steal, they, they used to have these buggies, these little buggies that they used around campus to basically people that were cleaning the grass would put the grass droppings on there, then take it to a dumpster, um, the rubbish. They'd, they'd use it to take items off the truck to the kitchen, you know, just your general logistical buggies for a university or, or a campus or the AIS, right? So we figured out that we could go back to the loading dock at the back of the dining hall, unplug them, they were electric, unplug them off the chargers and just go for a cruise. And it was hilarious because we'd just be, you know, there'd be a group of kids all pulled up into a buggy and numerous times we'd get chased by the chefs because they knew the buggies, they'd come out, they were gone. Like that was fun for us. We'd, we'd sneak into the gymnastics hall at night. So the guy on our team that did the tour, the tour guide stuff, his swipe card allowed us to basically any building in the AAS. Um, so we would go there at nine o'clock at night and go jump on the trampolines and jump in the foam pits, just just doing fun stuff like that, which was which was awesome. Now, I'd sneak out when I was underage. So as I said, we had to be back on 12, 12.30 at, on weekends and, and 10 o'clock at, on weekdays, which which pretty much meant if you were under 18, you shouldn't be going out to, to, to nightclubs anyway because you're under 18. But I had a fake ID at the time, so I used to sneak out. We used to had, had all kinds of ways of getting out of there. It was a pretty secure place, but we found ways. We found ways of getting out. There was a blind spot near a camera on the corner of some fencing that you could kind of jump over, which was kind of a long drop. It was about 10 feet down. Actually had a teammate really sprain his ankle really bad and couldn't train for a while. So that was interesting how he explained that to to the coaches. I don't know how he, how he ended up what he ended up making up, but he, he I don't think they found out, but they had some some reservations about his story. So that was one way to get out. People on on the first level of the landing of the residences would try to jump out of their out of their window and tie bed sheets, get a rope, put a chair down there. That was a way which was also kind of dangerous. We figured out a way there was a side gate. So there was a main entry to the residences and there was a side gate that used to be open from 6 a.m. till 10 p.m. This gate would work with just your swipe card, but then they'd, they'd turn it off after that. So you had to go through the main residence. So they wanted to see who was coming in and out late at night on camera. So we figured out with this gate, it was, it was a jail type gate, bars. We figured out a way that this gate used to close on a magnet, right? So one side of the gate, once it hinges open, it closes back, it, it sucks itself onto the magnet, and, and then when you swipe, it releases that magnet. So we figured out that if you get like um, the plastic off a Coke bottle, you know, the wrapping that says Coca-Cola on it, you peel that off, and if you stick it on that magnet, when the gate shuts, it looks shut, but the, the plastic wrap, it, it kind of deters the magnet from sticking, so you could just basically walk up to the gate at any time and just, and just open it. So we started doing that, and then we got basically got caught. We didn't get caught, sorry, the security guard saw it one night on his on his patrol route that someone stuck it in there so that was then hard to to do because they were keeping a lookout for all of that it then got to a point where we would just boot the gate open we figured out that the, the the magnet was pretty strong but two or three heavy kicks and the gate would just swing open so we'd use that why would we do that well if you went out and you were coming back after 12 30 you'd generally you swipe in and you're underage it would 
it would send a message to the coaches that this kid's been out at X, Y, Z time and then you get a, a hammering from your coaches about being out underage. So we would um, find ways to get him out of there. The, the one way I found out, which was James Bond-esque, I guess, but um, my mum came up and stayed, I think, mid-year to visit for, for a couple of days and they used to stay, guests that come up used to stay in the flat underneath the residences. So every residence, twenty there's 20 residences, there'd be a flat underneath, which was a self-contained unit essentially. And it wasn't for athletes, it was for, for guests. And they had a little backyard because I was on the kind of the ground floor. And then you could basically just walk straight out of the AIS campus from those units because it was just a straw fence on the other side that was six feet high. You could just jump over that and you were free, right? So when my mum came up and stayed as she was leaving i said Where, where's the key to the unit she said here i've got it i said well tell them you've lost the key i think it was a 50 dollar bond for the losing the key it was a big thick metal keys so i said pay the 50 dollars for the, i need this key what are you doing what are you up to you're gonna get in trouble again i said just please just let me have this key it lets me get in and out here no no and I, I had this key for basically a year i passed it on to the young fellows when i left but no one knew anything i had a girlfriend at the time a lot of times we'd you know, spend the night down there and then she could just sneak out straight from, from there or I would go to her place and sneak out. So it was a heaven sin having that key and just a smart way I figured out of getting around the security aspect of things. So that's another thing we did. Camps used to come through there. So, you know, a hockey team from a suburb in Melbourne might come through to the AS to train with their hockey team or, or watch trainings or do a tour of the, of the facility. So we'd have a lot of random people staying in those in those units sometimes. And that was... um fun for a lot of athletes because there was a lot of girls teams that came through there and and um i know a lot of guys on our team and different guys would have fun with with those those girls of similar age i kind of wasn't really i didn't date or see any girls that lived on campus i i kind of was just more rogue essentially did my did my shit away from away from the campus and i'm not sure why i just just was always marching the beat of my own drum and that that all worked out well like I said, a few teammates had cars. So I had a teammate that the second year in 2003 that had a car and I started using that car more often than not. I didn't have a license. I was 17 at the time. I only had my learning permit, but he didn't know any different. He never even thought to ask because I was like, hey man, can I borrow your car? And he's like, yeah, no worries, just take it. And so we just ended up using his car a lot and um, he wouldn't have thought to ask for a license. So I was cruising around, never got pulled over, never got in any trouble, wouldn't speed, just be smart about it. I was a great driver. I just didn't have my license and that's how we kind of got around for the most part my second year go to go get some some food and go to the shops and we were more rats a lot and we'd cause trouble at the local shopping center whenever we could so that made that made for fun and that was kind of the basis of most of our trouble there were two big ones one was like i said earlier we used to get into it with the water polo kids a lot a teammate of mine he was one of those uh, i'm not going to name him but he was one of those guys that um was just a man strength guy that hit puberty at 12 or 13. You know, he was hairy, strong, not even weight room strong, man strong. And he hated these water polo kids for the most part. And um, I guess we all did. We just had some sort of beef with them that just continued and continued. And so he used to drive, his job was to drive those vans that I talked about. So if you missed a school bus, there'd be a van that would take you. And that was his job. And a lot of times he would have a shitload of water polo kids in his van now these water polo kids and swimmers generally would come straight from the pool they'd stink on chlorine they'd fog up the window so there was a bit of banter we'd have back and forth with them you know he likes a stinky this dad and my teammate did not like him he had a girlfriend there who was a female basketball at the time and he felt like they were hitting on her at times so he was he was just livid whenever they get in his van he'd give him nothing he'd be staring him down he'd be muttering under his breath so it was already a bit hostile so one night they go out 
I don't go out because I'm under 18. I, I, I just didn't go that night. And um, they run into the water polo guys at a pub or a club or RSL. Everyone's on the beers and on the drinks. And, and one of the little fellas gets into it with with my teammate. And I guess my teammate takes the high road and says, listen, man, we're going we're gonna to see each other every day on campus. Let's just, you know, let's just chill out. When you get back to the AIS campus tonight, whatever time it is, come up to our, our block, come to my room. I've got some drinks there, some alcohol, we'll have a few shots, talk some shit, have a beer, whatever, and let's just sort this out, man. There's no point having this fester. So I cut to about two or three in the morning. I'm in my room sleeping. I hear some some yelling and some yelling and screaming, some back and forth, some noise. Come down, I come down there at the middle landing, which is the third level, and my teammate is out there and and this little water polo kid comes up in a bond singlet, cut off. He's t- he's a tiny kid, he looks like a little twelve year old, blonde hair, blue eyes, not a hair on his chin. He's drunk as a skunk. He's walking up the stairs. And as he's walking up, he's talking shit to, to my teammate. You know, I'm not scared of you, mate. I'm not scared of you. You know, blah, 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 all that, you know, back and forth. And my teammate, to his credit, was, was very, very calm. He's like, mate, just just calm down. Like, I don't, there's no point fighting. Like, this is stupid, blah, blah, blah. He's trying to talk it down. Like, he was he was really doing the right thing. And, and this kid, you know, has a fuse and he was strong. So, I was like, dude, you're not picking the right guy. But anyway, this kid comes up with one of his teammates, just them two. So, they come into our block with this attitude and, and he wanted to fight, right? So I go downstairs and I'm standing right next to Dave, like, don't worry about it, man. Just let it go, let it go. And then this kid just kept going and going and prodding and prodding and teammate ends up picking him up like a like out of a cartoon, like picks this kid up off his feet. He's about a, feet in the, a foot in the air, half a meter in the air, feet are dangling. He's got him pinned up against the door and he's like, mate, I told you, just get the fuck out of here. I don't want... No issues. I'm not gonna. I don't want to fight you. Just leave. So as this happens, of course, this this kid, this smug kid. I mean, he is drunk at the time. He, he throws a little jab and hits my teammate on the chin. Teammate then basically turns the 180 away from the door, plonks him down on his feet, and just bops him right in the right in the jaw. One punch. The kid goes down like a sack of shit. He's out cold before he hits the ground. We kind of half catch him, and one of my other teammates then drags him out of the block down the stairs, puts him outside our block, leaning against the, the door, The door, makes sure he comes to, gives him some water, pours it on him, has him drink some water. The kid comes back too and basically shuts the door on him. He's like, go back to your rooms. Little did we know that the kid, he was an elite private school kid from very affluent, rich family in Sydney who then sued my teammate. We were in the, in the common room one day and- we basically were just sitting there watching TV. Police come up on a Monday or a Tuesday and ask for, are you so-and-so? Is he here? Yep, this is, that's me. All right, stand up. You need to come with us. And what was funny about that was our common room was filled with street signs all over the wall. So we had stop signs, giveaway signs, street name signs, all that shit was just all over the walls because there was, there was a few guys on the team that would go out at night. It's been a tradition. I'm not sure why. I never really went out and did it. It just didn't appeal to me. I thought it was whatever. And they would go and remove street signs. I don't even know how they got up that high at times. They had a little ladder in their car or whatever, but a few teammates would go up with screwdrivers or whatever and pinch all these street signs. So the cops come in first and they see all our whole common rooms just filled with street signs. So they, they kind of almost had a giggle at that and they're like, oh, you know, we'll let that go, whatever. So they take, they take him, he gets questioned, he ends up getting charged with assault. And that was my first foray to going to court. Who would have thought I would have went to court for something I didn't do? So that was a proud moment because I thought I'd definitely end up there for some some stupid I did along along the way as a child, but end up having to go and be a key witness for my teammate 
and I told the truth that he got hit and hit him back once and kid went down and my teammate ended up getting off. He didn't get charged. He got off with all on all charges in self-defense and it was just amazing because this kid, the, the family that, you know, sued him, it was it was a consequence of his actions. I don't I don't obviously condone violence. Um, I do condone if you get hit, you hit back. I think that's fair in love and war, right? But this kid caused everything basically and, you know, people say it's two sides to every story. I have no, no reason to lie. I mean, I was right there next to him and I was sober and, this kid came up with just a stinking attitude and just kept just wouldn't shut up and was talking shit and antagonizing and he got he got what he wanted and then couldn't let it go and and ends up ends up suing but that's that's where we are as a society today I think um you know which is which is disappointing but the kid should have just taken his merit got the wire put in his jaw and, and gone on his merry ways but just wanted to wanted to get the last laugh and and my 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 teammate wasn't from an affluent family didn't have a whole lot of money so it, it hurt him just covering the court costs. To go and defend himself. So that was one interesting story. The other one, now this one's a, a little disgusting. It was one night, the older boys go out, myself, a teammate of mine, don't go out. We're under 18, so we just stay back. Now these older kids come back and they go to they go to the top top level, which was across from my room. They go to a kid named Sam Harris's room. He was seven, seven foot four kid. They continue their party at two or three in the morning after the, the pub crawl or whatever. They, they go to his room and they continue drinking. So they start playing loud music. They they Basically, working us up at two, three in the morning, right? So I call my teammate. We had we had those little, you know, Telstra room phones. I could call room to room. Call my teammate. So can you believe this shit? What the hell's going on? He's like, yeah, man, they woke me up. This is bullshit. I said, we need to do something, man. We need to do something. So I had I had firecrackers on me, bungers. So I let's go throw some fire, fireworks under their door. He's like, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. So we, we we meet up on my floor and light these firecrackers, throw them under the door. Bang goes off. Nothing. We throw about two or three of them. No reaction. So the whole reason you're doing this generally is to get a reaction. We get no reaction. And I know for a fact that a former teammate of mine with the Sydney Kings, Daniel Kickett, I can guarantee you he was in there and it's like, it's Bogues, just ignore him. It'll piss him off even more. And he was right because we were like, where's our reaction? We want a reaction. Got nothing. So we then were like clutching at straws, right? So generally within your block, when you go room to room or to a teammate's room or into the common room, you leave your door wide open, right? So they had these um, self-closing doors for fire hazards, but we would you know, the pivot thing that made it close, we would would knock that off and you could basically have your door wide open. It saved you taking your key. If you went to the shower or the toilet, you'd never lock your door. Some guys would still shut it but not lock it and a lot of guys would just leave it wide open because um, it was just constantly annoying to go in in and out, pushing that big-ass door. And so my teammate goes uh, something along the lines of, let's see whose room's open. So one of the kids' room's open and it's one of the more, one of the more, he was a bit of a, you know, quiet kid but, at the same time, had a, a bit of arrogance about him, but he, he was a good kid and he had his door wide open. So my teammate goes, I'm going to go and shit in his sink. So I'm like, wait, what? No, you won't. You won't do it. I'm trying to gas my teammate up. Like, you're not going to do it. You're soft. You wouldn't do that. Not thinking about anything else, about how funny it would be. So he goes down, jumps up on this kid's sink, squats, and I just hear the clonk into the sink. So he's, he's at that point, he shit in the sink. He then yells at me to go get some toilet paper from the from the bathroom. So I do. I go get some toilet paper. I give it to him. He wipes his ass, chucks it in the kids in the kids bin, which is under the sink. And I'm just like, oh boy, like it's already stinking, right? So like, I don't know if we should have did this, like whatever. So we're like, cool, whatever. This is funny as. So I go back to my room. He goes back to his room. So I don't go to sleep, right? So I'm like, I'm not, I'm just waiting because I'm I'm like, this is gonna be 
something's going to happen here. Something's about to go down. So we hear everyone leaving the, the top floor room. Miss Kids' room's at the bottom floor. So you hear everyone walking down the stairs. You hear everyone going to their respective rooms. You hear the doors shut, clonk, clonk, clonk. You get down there, and within about 30 seconds of all the doors shutting, you just hear, oh, my God. Oh, what the fuck? Oh, my God. So this kid's like yelling and screaming and losing his shit. Everyone kind of hear all the doors open, clonk, 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 what's going on, what's going on. So the teammate that I went to court for, funnily enough, comes up to my room at that point, knocks on my door, and he's he's ready to fight me. He's like, why would you do that for? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you would do some shit like that. I know it was you. Just why would you do that? And I'm like, mate, I didn't do shit. Like, So if you want to go, let's go, but I didn't do it. So think what you want. I mean, if I did it, I'd admit it. And they ended up figuring out that I was adamant it wasn't me. They ended up figuring out who it was. But anyway, the kid the kid goes and gets a the kid's poo in his sink. He goes and gets a stick from somewhere, picks it up, throws it out of his room into the common area of the stairwell. It hits the wall, slides down the wall. It's disgusting. Brown streak down the wall. The whole block, we wake up the next morning, the whole block stinks. Like it was, it was disgusting, right? Obviously, something stupid that we shouldn't have done. But the next day, we have to evacuate our block for like, I think it was eight hours. And the people, the health health department had to come out. They had to come out with a hazmat suit. They had the special backpack spray stuff. And it was like a big deal because we put, you know, put the whole block out of action and, and all that. But that's just something stupid that we did. The kid, my teammate that did it, got suspended for a game. He couldn't play that week. Funnily enough, leading up to that week, we'd just been the last week of school for that term. I had no homework. I go to study hall. I get to study hall with nothing because I have no work, right? So I don't bring anything. Teacher goes, the study hall teacher goes, where's your stuff? I said, look, I have no homework at all. Like they've, they've basically said, you know, nothing for, for the holidays. There's no homework. See you next term. And I said, so can I go? Like I don't have, I know other kids were generally allowed to go when they, did, when they didn't have homework for being at the end of the term or whatever. And she was a bit stubborn and said, nah, you got to sit here and stay here for, for study hall. And I couldn't comprehend the logic behind it. It just didn't make sense to me. I'm like, why do I need to stay, to study, stay in study hall if I have nothing to study? She said, you can read a book. And I said, oh. So anyway, there was a game on at the AS Arena uh, or the AS training courts. It was our WNBR women's team was playing against uh, touring US college, I think Oregon or someone. And I wanted to go watch that game. So I said to teacher call or whatever, Yep. So as soon as she left our little study quarters, I grabbed my stuff and and walked out, went straight to the basketball courts and sat sat courtside and was watching the game. And the teacher found out where I was, came down there and just laid into me in front of other teammates and other people. And that kind of set me off into into being pretty pretty angry back. And we had a bit of a back and forth. And I said, I'm not coming back to study hall. I'm staying here. And I watched the game, went back to my room. And then the next day, had some crisis meetings about, you know, not listening to the teacher and and kind of the back and forth that I had and I ended up um, going home that weekend for three or four days. I still remember the coaches just said, look, go home, go clear your mind, refresh yourself, think about you know where you're at and the opportunity that you have and, and you need to make the most of it. And I thought, you know, I'm very close to getting booted, but I guess the coaches would, would, would kind of see when kids are struggling like that and a bit testy that they'd send them home and they do it a whole lot more now than they did back then. They, they I think they make kids now go home for two or three weeks at a time. Uh, sorry, during the during the regular year, like school holidays come, two or three weeks go home, come back. So after that, basically I came back to the AS and I was a new man. I was changed, you know, as far as all that went, um, I, I kind of knew I made a mistake and I was – 
like thinking to myself, shit, I'm gonna I'm gonna jeopardize this sensational opportunity of of being at the AS and becoming a great basketball player. So, you know, I I, I turned it back, came back refreshed, and, and didn't look back. Essentially, I I really really got better, and it was just one of those things that that made me realize kind of what I had an opportunity to lose, and I didn't want to lose it. So came back and never really looked back as as far as behavior and and all that kind of stuff. So after that, a little tidbit that not many people know, I had signed a letter of intent to go to the University of Utah. I signed it in around June or July of 2002. The plan was to spend the rest of the year at the AIS and then go over to the University of Utah around about Christmas, New Year's time, just in time for the second semester. I would then train with the team. I would redshirt. I wouldn't play. Basically, for those not familiar with college, redshirting means that you uh, go to class, you train, you do all that stuff, you just don't play, and it doesn't count on a year of eligibility. So when you go to college, you have four years, freshman first year, sophomore second year, junior third year, a senior fourth year. And if you do a thing called a redshirt, it gives you a fifth year that doesn't count to those four eligibility years. Sometimes uh, kids will also do that if they have a season-ending injury, they might spend that next season rehabbing. And they, they'll redshirt, but they, they want to redshirt me for half the year. So I get acclimatized, I figure out the school, you know, accustomed to a new way of life in America, all that fun stuff. And then um, and then play, you know, be ready to go the following season in 2003. So the kicker was I signed this letter of intent the Rogue Bogues way and I did not let anybody know that I did it. I, I didn't let the AS coaches know, which was pretty, pretty disrespectful in a way. I was still at that point kind of anti-establishment when it came to basketball in Australia, I just felt like um, even though I was at the AIS and I was getting a great opportunity, I still didn't really trust anyone there and I was really trying to get out of um, of Australia to America as soon as possible. Uh, so one day I get a call from Frank Arcego and Marty Clark, the coaches, head coach and assistant coach, and can you please come to our office and I show up and they have the an email from Basketball Australia that basically said, what the fuck? And it was a, a link to the University of Utah website. And that was back in the day where there was no social media. So that no one found out quickly. It took them a couple of days to realize what was going on. But then seeing a sign the letter of intent to go over, you know, why didn't you let us know? These are things we need to know. You know, the coaches generally would try to talk to guys about different school options. This school might fit with you better for big guys. Hey, this coach is a bit of a, a nutcase and it might not suit your personality. I mean, they, they did that and kind of mentored a lot of Australian kids on, on where to go and what would be the best fit because it's not as easy as just going to a school where you like the colors or you like the you've seen it on a movie or you know you know it's a big name school like UCLA or Kentucky or whatever it is it's there's actually a strategy to where you need to go because if you don't pick the right school you could end up going within a year you could be playing in a system that's not suitable to your strengths you know etc etc so they were pretty pissed and then not only that they you know basically said well you know you're at the AIS we were hoping for the next year and a half to then push on into the World Championships, which is in July of 2003. So if you now leave the group and then come back into the group, it could affect culture, it could affect all those things. So they had, they had they rightfully had gripes with it, but it was the way I did things. I marched to the beat of my own drum and I ended up doing that and it didn't go down too well. So you fast forward probably uh, maybe, maybe two or three months and – the University of Utah calls uh, Marty Clark and says, "You need to help us. Andrew's probably not going to be eligible. We just found out one. You know, he doesn't have enough credits in science, in physical science or social science. It wasn't a great issue. My grades were fine. It was an issue that um, I did a class called sports studies in at Lake G, and it was deemed 
as part social, part physical science because you're, you're doing physical sport and learning sports and you're also doing the social aspect of it and cult, you know, team building, culture and all that kind of stuff. And the NCAA at the time deemed it as one or the other. They said, you can't have a class that does both. It's either X or Y. So it's either social science or physical and then whichever, whichever pool I put for the credits, I was short a few credits on the other one. So I couldn't, I couldn't go over. And it was um, actually worked out much better for me in the long run. But I guess Rick Majerus was was pretty pissed off. The coach that was my recruiting coach that was supposed to handle all my transcripts and make sure that I was doing everything right. He ended up getting the wrath of it when I when I went over to the University of Utah my first season. I saw that coach one time at a training session. The rest of the season, Majerus had him going all over the US to the middle of nowhere to recruit kids and just sending him to random places just because he, he was so pissed off at him. He basically, he was petty like that. He just didn't want to see him in his sight. He was contracted with the University of Utah and still got paid and everything, but Majerus essentially made his life hell. So he was he was only, I saw him at one training session. He was one of the main coaches that recruited me when I finally got there. So that was that was a, an interesting part of how the game all works. But um, so then, then you go to the end of 2002 and I'm like, oh, what, what am I going to do now? Um, I don't have a scholarship for the next season because Marty Clark and Fr- Frank Arcego, well, I guess Marty was taken over as a head coach, but they had decided on their scholarship spots for the following year because you have to give notice, you know, two or three months to let the kids know that are coming in. They had the full roster of 12, so now I'm stuck in limbo. Do I go back to Melbourne, train with, with a pro team for six months before I go over? You know, it's going to be a bit harder. Is it going to be regimented? Where do I go to school now? Because I had to make up those credits. I had to do, you know, a few more science classes basically to get to get things going. So, Marty went into bat for me. He went to the AIS is predominantly funded by the taxpayer and whatnot. And once you get a budget, you get a budget. There's no there's no asking for more. So he somehow tweaked the budget to take some money from here and there with equipment and all this and and, and found a 13th scholarship spot. He'll speak about that a little bit later on the podcast, but basically got me in that next year. And and from then on, it was the first person in Australia, you know, outside of my family that actually fought for me and went to bat for me. And I really grew to really like marty clark because of that um and you know it just wasn't something i was used to in australian basketball no one no one ever really went for went to bat for me and backed me no matter what and he did that and you know overnight i really respected him and and wanted to do my best for him so that's how that worked out so i come back from my second year 2003 and that was um that was a year Uh, i mean i made another big step I, i was i was comfortable saying that I was the best player on the team, but I was also comfortable in embracing that. Whereas, you know, sometimes you're not really comfortable being that guy, even though you are you're the best player on the team, but you don't really embrace it. I was more than comfortable doing it. I had the confidence and, and the work ethic and putting all the time to continue to, to get better and better. And yeah, it was interesting. So at the end of 2002, we go on a US tour and we go over to the US and play a bunch of college teams, a bunch of D1 schools and D2 schools. We played um, at the University of Oregon. We played at the um, University of Gonzaga and a bunch of smaller schools, University of Portland, University of Oregon State, I believe, and a few D2 schools, Lois and Clark and, and whatnot. So played a bunch of these schools and and we fared well. We're basically essentially a high school team. We're not even in co- a college age yet. And and we battled with a lot of these schools. We beat, a, I think we beat a few. I think we beat University of Portland and a, and a few other D1 schools, which is just mind blowing considering we're all 16, 17, 18 at the time. We weren't even eligible to be in college yet by age, by the rules. And I still remember we played at a, a few colleges that were 
really interesting. They were um, obnoxiously loud, intimidating fans. We played at MacArthur Court in Oregon. I believe it was called MacArthur Court. It kind of had a feel of what I imagine the Boston Garden would be. Really old. I think they've blown it up now and, and built a brand new arena probably about f- five or ten years ago. But it had a culture and a soul about it. Um, but the fans there were rowdy, and you know that was the first real experience of being heckled. And 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 you know that was back in the day where it was okay. It wasn't. Um, frowned upon where students would get to games two hours before and just heckle you during the warm-ups and call you every name under the sun and your hair cut and you're skinny and you're this and you're that and we all copped it and um it, it brought us closer together so playing in australia we ever really played in front of big big crowds because we played in the in the aba so a few a few of the small country towns had crowds so whenever we get heckled we used to do something where we'd be in, in layup lines so two lines one one line would do layups the other line would rebound and basic basketball warm-up anyone that's played basketball knows what it is so what we'll do is when i outlet the pass to the guy in the layout line i'd get a teammate of mine that's been heckled or i'm being heckled and we'd, we'd basically have an understanding where i'd throw a really hard chest pass or baseball pass essentially and, and whoever i'm throwing it to just lets it lets it accidentally go through his hands doesn't touch it and it it pings whoever was heckling you in the head hopefully and so we started doing that in the u.s um <laughs> to, to a few student sections um, i remember in Gonzaga, we. We belted a, a guy in, in the face that was heckling a teammate of mine named Aaron Bruce was just killing him, he was calling him Frodo and whatever because he had one of those haircuts that you had in the 2000s and, and we ended up pelting him in the face with a ball, glasses fell down and then we're laughing back at him and the students are ready to go. So it was, it was I still remember the tour to this day, it was great. But the most important part of that was we, we competed. Um, we lost to Gonzaga by 40. We lost to Oregon by probably the same, but there were, there were spurts in quarters where we were playing, we were playing them you know, toe-to-toe and we weren't intimidated even though the scoreboard didn't look flattering. And I, I remember going on that tour and it was the first time away from home and, and away from a practice facility and a, away from normality. And I still remember to this day, I couldn't, you couldn't get enough practice time in because you basically have a court for an hour, a high school gym, whatever, you do your training and that was it. So I still remember getting a basketball and a skipping rope that I brought along myself and going to the underground car park and just doing ball handling drills and doing some skipping and stretching and stuff I used to do with Steve that had ingrained in me because I, I didn't feel like I was getting enough work. Um, even though I should have been just enjoying the tour more and playing games and having a laugh, I felt like I still need to put work in. And that goes to to becoming a pre- professional and everything, you know, coming together of, of making sure that when you feel like you haven't done enough work, you probably haven't. So I still remember that. So that's just a tip for, for young kids out there like there's there's going to be a time where you, there'll be every excuse under the sun why you can't train or availability, this, that. But there's always there's always something you can do and that's just an example of something I did. So we then go on to 2003. We win win the Siebel again or finish second in Siebel and um, that leads us into to going into the World, the World uh, Cup, which was in Thessaloniki in Greece. It was supposed to be in Kuala Lumpur, I think, but they, I think, they believe there was an earthquake right before it or months before it, and, and so they ended up moving it back to, the rule is it goes back to the previous place it was if that city is not ready with facilities and whatnot. So we went back to Greece and we loved it because we'd rather be in Greece, to be quite honest with you. We had a lot of people that were pumped about that trip going to Greece in the summertime. So we go over there, we play in, play in a pre-tournament tournament, a lead-in tournament, and we do pretty well. We make the final. I think we lose to, I think it was Croatia or Greece in the final, but play pretty well, surprised ourselves to an extent. Like We didn't realize how good we were um, until we got 
kind of to the World Championships and the World Cup. And we get through the first first round of our pool, do pretty well. I think we had Argentina, uh, South Korea, and Turkey, and basically swept those three, won all those games comfortably, go to the second second round of the pool rounds. And we have, I think, Lithuania, us, Puerto Rico, and I believe it was the uh, might have been the US in our pool. So we end up losing to. Uh, we ended up losing to Lithuania first up in that pool round. They we, we just didn't play well. I didn't play well individually. We lose to them. We then beat Puerto Rico just. It was a real close game. They played us well and they pushed us to, to the end. And they played a, an interesting style, a really physical, cheap shots, all that kind of stuff. I remember I think Brad Robbins got hit in the nuts on the jump ball on purpose, like just just a bunch of dirty shit, you know. And that's you know some countries played like that, and um, South Americans played a physical kind of style try to get under your skin and get you to react and get you thrown out of the game and then we had the us as our last game right so we're at that point i think we're what are we one and one and we we basically have to win this game and not only do we have to win it the way it worked out was with the it's a percentage thing so lithuania i think were two and one because they they lost to the us and beat uh, puerto rico puerto rico were basically out because they lost to us in lithuania and then the us were were two and oh at that point going into our game so the way it worked was we had to beat the US, but we had to beat them by more than I think it was six or eight points. So we're, we're like, okay, we got to beat the US, which at any basketball tournament, any age group, under 19s, under 21s, wherever you go, it's a tough, tough feat, right? So we go in like we can do this, but at the same time, it's like, man, we have to actually beat them by a fair bit. Like it's, you know, a buzzer beater wouldn't matter. We'd still be out. So if we lost by five, we'd be out and going home. So we go into this game and, and we just play a hell of a game. We play a great first half. I think we're up 10 at half and we end up blowing the game out. We beat them by 22 points. And little did they know, I don't think they really looked into the, how the points difference worked because we beat them by more than I think it was 12 or 14. It ended up knocking them out of the tournament completely. So this was a team that was pretty star-started. They had CJ Watson, they had JJ Redick, they had Deron Williams, they had D Brown, they had a highly touted um, guy that went to the University of Arizona named Mustafa Shakur. They had um, a, a big name, Paul Davis, who I believe went to Michigan State. So they, they were stacked. They were all the best young bigs. It wasn't a team that we see sometimes with the US teams, a B team or a C team. It was their best players. And we end up beating them, knocking them out. And then we go into into the court, into the semifinals against Croatia. And the other side is, is Lithuania versus, um, who are they playing? Lithuania played Greece, and that was in Greece, of course. So so we end up beating Croatia. We smacked them. We beat them by, by 15, 20 points, played really well. I had a huge game, 35 and, and 20 or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers, but had a really good game. We go into the final, we go into the gold medal match. We'll go on, you know, under-19s have a chance to make history never never i don't think ever even medaled but um i definitely know we didn't, we'd never had a gold medal before so to have an opportunity to compete for that was was great so then we watched the greece versus lithuania game and that was a show within itself because greece did everything they could to try and cheat in those games every time lithuania went on a, on a 5-0 run someone from greece's bench would dump water on the floor and, and the referees would have to blow their whistles and clean the floor for five minutes and then they go back out on the court greece would get the, the lead back and then lithuania would go on another 6-0 run and then water would go on the court again so we were like what the hell's going on it was there was a whole method to the madness of how they manipulated things to try and get their way they ended up losing anyway lithuania go to the final now lithuania smacked us you know in the in the second round of the pools and they they were you know we're all staying in the same hotel the lithos were a well-oiled machine they were so confident coming into that tournament that they'd never lose they kind of scoffed at us at our team and, and the Australians, like a lot of people did, like, you know, kangaroos, what do you know about basketball, that kind of stuff. And we kind of felt it, you know, they they were they didn't give us much. They kind of, you know, kind of smug, like, how are you going? Whenever we'd see them and easy beats, that kind of mentality. And, and then we, we played them in the final and beat the living shit out of them. We beat them by 30, 35 or 37. It might be one of the biggest scores ever 
in um, under-19 World Championship history in a final, and it wasn't close. Basically, after halftime, the game was over. We, we scored 100 points in the first three quarters. We had an opportunity to get all our bench on late in the game. It, it was really satisfying to, to come from all of us kind of freckle-faced, not a hair on our chin in 2002 to build into this team that won a world championship. It, it's something we'll always always remember and it was a special group and, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. So we end up getting the gold medal. I end up getting the MVP of the tournament, the All-Star 5. So all of a sudden, I'm starting to get attention from European teams. Funnily enough, if I didn't make the AIS, this is another thing no one really knows. I've gone through my junior career in at Dandenong, Waverley, Sandringham. It got to a point where if, if I went to this Australian camp and it didn't work out well. I didn't, I didn't go to the AIS and I didn't make the Australian junior team. I was basically pretty adamant on going over to Croatia. Um, Steve had some connections. We had family there living in Zagreb and, and I was going to go to, you know, live over there and train with the Sabona Academy. And it was, it was in the works. It was very, very close. And it was one of those things that I said, you know, if I get an opportunity in Australia, I'm just going to go somewhere else and try to get an opportunity overseas. And thankfully the AIS saved the day and, and it's all behind us because there's every chance in the world if I went over there, Without making a national team here, you know, I could have potentially played played over there for, for the national team, and and that's the the unfortunate reality of, you know, if I would have left Australia, if I'm being honest, with the you know leaving in, in in kind of tough circumstances where I'm a little bit pissed with 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 basketball in this country and and the club scene and the politics of how everything works. Logic says I might, might I could have turned my back on, on my country that I love, and it wouldn't have been the right decision, but. Back then, it's a decision that a young, brash kid with a chip on his shoulder would probably make. So, thankfully, that didn't that didn't happen. But then, at the end of this World Championships, what did happen was I ended up going over to Croatia, which we'll talk about um, shortly. And whilst I was over there, I started getting some some offers to to sign a professional deal, which I'll talk to and talk about in detail shortly. We're going to get to to the interview with Marty Clark, which is it's about a, almost an hour interview. It's pretty in depth, and, and it's basically just like two blokes having a beer, talking shit about the good old days, a coach and player, you know, mentor and student. The last thing I will say that that um, World Championship team was probably one of the most successful teams as, as a team, and one of the most successful teams for a junior national team that had professionals. Most of those guys carved out pretty good professional careers, whether it be myself in the NBA, whether it be Alex Marriage in Europe, whether it be Aaron Bruce in college in the NBL, and Damian Martin, and most of those guys played you know, at some capacity at a professional level. So that doesn't happen very often with junior teams. And I believe Brad Newley is the last man standing. He's um, a former teammate of mine with the Sydney Kings last season. He's still playing. I think he's the last one left from that group that has not retired. So hopefully he can keep going for another 10 years, but um, we'll keep watching him closely. But let's get to, to our interview with Marty Clark. Sit back and relax. Remember, this is one of the most influential coaches in Australia when it comes to talent identification at a young age, very switched on, um, and it's a great interview, so enjoy. So I'd like to welcome Marty Clark to the Rogue Bogues podcast for the portion of my journey. Quick wrap on Marty, he's a former player, played in the NBL for the Devonport Warriors, now defunct, um, North Melbourne Giants, who I was a fan of as a kid, funnily enough, that was in the 80s and <laughs> 90s, um, and then was a was an assistant coach at the AIS then became the head coach of the AIS program in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s era. Was the head coach of the Adelaide 36ers at one point for three years in 2010. Um, worked with Australian Boomers as an assistant and then went over to the States at St. Mary's, which was the Australian pipeline for, for Aussies going to college pretty much for five years in 2013 to 2018. So being heavily involved with basketball throughout, mainly through the development stages in Australia and 
great eye for talent and someone who was influential kind of in in who I am today and, and the career that I had. So welcome to the show, Marty. Yeah, certainly. Thanks, Bogue. It's, um, it's interesting as a coach, you kind of get tied up in the day-to-day and I'm really looking forward to this next uh, period of time here talking to you because uh, you don't think about a lot of the things you should think about and that's the memories you make. Uh, you always think about how did practice go, how did this player go, what do they need to get better at, did I talk too much, then the game comes up and you do the scouting and a lot of basketball is about the, the relationships and, the, and the, the good fun times. I think at times, and I'm definitely guilty of this, is you don't celebrate the, the non-basketball parts. And um, I'm interested to listen to your memory, uh, which I know is really good, uh, and compare it to what my memory is of what's probably going to be a lot of similar events, uh, seen it from two sides of the fence. But uh, yeah, uh, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, we were released yesterday a little bit quickly. You came over and- I mean, those stories are kind of what makes the journey um, so good, right? You know, when you can catch up for beers afterwards, whether you won a championship or all the silly things you did. I think we, we spoke for an hour or two of just just back and forth with stories and athletes. And just so um, everyone out there is clear, I mean, Marty's been instrumental, not just in my career, but Paddy Mills, Joe Ingles, Nate Y. I mean, a countless number of players that have come through the Australian pipeline that are now, you know, Delva Dover, that are now professionals in the NBA, the NBL. Marty's had his hands on him, so... I mean, we'll get started. I mean, obviously, it's more slighted towards myself, but we'll talk about the team as well. But I mean, when did you first hear about about me um, as a young fella and, and rumors, thoughts? What was kind of the MO you heard about me once? I mean, I guess the first time. Yeah, well, we really uh, were in a world championship cycle. And in those days, world championships came up once every four years. So unfortunately, not every young player got a chance to play at a world championship. And uh we just had an under-18 nationals in, in Canberra in 2001. And uh, I said to Frank, who was the head coach of the team, um, we've got no bigs. <laughs> there are no bigs this championship. I think uh, the bigs that were in the squad at that stage were Dave Fanning, who was like maybe a 6'7 guy. He ended up playing a little bit of footy with Collingwood. Uh, Mehmet Bektas from, uh, yep. from Knox. And I said, we've got to go and find some bigs. We've got to get out, out and ask some people about what's around. And... And you were one of the guys that uh, whose name came up. Uh, I think you were at Sandringham at the time, and um, some guys in Victoria said, "Oh, there's a big kid down here. He's, he's sort of still growing. He used to be a guard, and uh, think he sh- should be good. A bit of a hothead. Um, a few of those type, yeah. type of sit- things were thrown around." I, I remember saying to Frank, "I don't care, hothead or whatever. We'd, if you go to a world championship with six foot seven starting centre, we're going to get destroyed." So. We, we dug up four guys. Obviously, Andrew, you won. Um, Alex Marich, uh, Big Al was another one, and um, Al was in the same situation, hadn't really been identified or even at club level with barely playing. Uh, Greg Vanderjet from uh, New South Wales Country was another one, and, and Big Sammy Harris from Tassie. And of those, three made the final team to go to Worlds, and Greg was a reserve. So, you know, there are big kids out there, and uh, it's a, a classic example of someone that just gets maybe looked over for whatever reason. But there's, there should and there, there is a pathway for kids to – a bit of a net to catch them. And uh, so came up to camp and obviously things went from there. But, uh, yeah, like we just saw a bit of bit of footage and it's like, man, he's six foot nine. I think he's about six nine at that stage. You can run and catch. And I said, that's that's a good start. Let's, let's just <laughs> – <laughs> let's go from there. Yeah, I guess it was – I mean, my questions around it now were like back then, obviously um, technology isn't what it is today. And I didn't, I didn't go to a nationals – because generally, you know, any smart coach that's in the national team program would just go to a nationals and be like, we get most of our players from that pool. That's supposed to be the best from each state. So 
I thought I'd never get a chance to even go to a camp, and so so to get that call was amazing. But I guess back to what you said that the grainy footage you had a funny Alex Marish story as yeah. well with with some of the videos you got of him. I didn't even know people were recording my games in Sandringham to get to you. So it was like kind of how did you how did that all piece together? Yeah, well, that's one of the things. Now you're actually not meant to take video unless everyone signs a piece of paper, and so it's. That piece gets a little harder than what it used to be, but uh, I think I think Charles Ryan actually from Dandenong was one guy we called, and if I'm not mistaken, you used to play at Dandenong, yeah. And then uh, he sort of said, "Oh, you know, he, he was actually complimentary." He said, "No, there's there's some other things around it, and sometimes it gets a, a bit out of control." And but that's the other things you actually look for as a, as a coach is who really has a passion for basketball. Now the passion might spray around a bit and. A referee might get ripped occasionally. Maybe a parent might get flipped off or whatever. Yeah. But but if it's there, then you have a chance to direct it in the right way. If if it's not there, I don't care how good a coach you are. You, you it's hard to instill heart and that's, motivation um, on a daily yeah, basis. And that's it takes right. away from the journey. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just sort of through that period of time where I was um, the assistant coach, the institute. You know, every coach goes through a journey of trying to work out what they are, and the, the things I came up with were heart and head. If you have a heart, like a love for the game and have a head as an understanding of it, we can kind of teach the hands and feet piece and the skill. And that was where I, what I said about you specifically was clearly got passion for something. And yeah. if it's in there, then we can direct it. And unbelievable understanding of the game. And when we spoke to Charles later, he sort of said, oh, well, he used to be a guard. And I said, well, that makes sense to me now. So... Unfortunately, you didn't get picked in those teams and we didn't see you till later, but um, maybe looking back, not a terrible thing. I mean- 100% and I've, I've touched on that. I think if I made if I made teams in the 14s, 16s, if I was in that elite category as a junior, I think I would have fizzled out because I think um, human nature says if you, have a, if you have a good week one week in, in, in junior sport, you're not going to work as hard leading into that next week when you're 12, 13 because you think you've made it. Yeah. Whereas the kid that's getting his ass kicked, he's probably putting more time in and that's exactly kind of was my journey. It was like I was – an afterthought for five, six years of my junior career, and then it just all kind of clicked and went went bang. But it was from time, time and effort put into the game. But I wouldn't change it for the world. I mean, I hated it at the time, no doubt. Um, and I'm, even the state coach at the time told me I'm going to regret at our at our going away uh, nationals dinner. I was an emergency, so he said I'm going to regret cutting this guy when he gave me my singlet, uh, my token singlet, even though I couldn't go with the team <laughs> to nationals. He actually said it on record, yeah. so I always remembered that. But yeah, I think it's interesting. But look, looking back to Journey 2, um, episode 2, I spoke about getting expelled from high school. So there was a story in there we discussed a little bit yesterday off off mic, but um, I was really stressed because I got expelled after I got the scholarship offer. So I asked you yesterday, did you know that I got expelled from school? Did you know about all that mishap that I had coming into the AIS? No. Look, I, we knew that there was um, school wasn't your um, highest priority, and we, we do a lot of background on people before we offer them scholarships and and some of that is around um it's not about whether you're good at school or not good at school it's about whether you achieve um at the level that the teachers would expect you to achieve at because that's going to be somewhat translatable in life and uh, if you're if you're okay with being ordinary when you should be excellent then that's probably going to happen at other areas of life too so no we had your transcript had all your grades and whatever else but we'd offered you the scholarship before you had your final run in at the school, so we didn't know, we didn't go back to the school. <laughs> so yeah. we don't call us go, hey, have you uh, have you expelled <laughs> little Johnny yet? Uh, and if he is, we're not going to bring him. But uh, so we didn't know. I didn't know about it. Maybe Frank did, but um, I was 
that was the first time I'd heard about it. Um, To be honest, I don't think it would have changed anything. Yeah, because you've had some kids like that in the past. Yeah, Yeah. and we've had kids that have dropped out of school and whatever else. And part part of the AIS or COE as it is now or or the Global Academy um, is to grab those kids that need a bit, whether it's in the schooling, uh, and get them back in school and back on track. And just so when they leave – in case basketball doesn't work out, they at least have a, a high school diploma and they've got a piece of paper in their hand. And and in the end, that, w- that was the idea to start with. In the end, I now understand how much of a confidence booster it is for young guys that thought they were going to fail at school to pass at school. And that, again, is translated. It reflects then on their basketball and they they, they feel like they've achieved something and – like it or not, I mean, big guys are just different. They, they live life differently from a, from a very young age. Uh, the, the the freak that is down the street and everyone laughs at and, yeah. uh, and everyone, you know, all the little kids call them big and yeah, slow. Yeah, I was talking about getting bullied in high school by the older all kids. Sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, so yeah. whatever you can do, whether it's on a basketball court or in a classroom or just in general life, to get some self-belief and some self-confidence in young bigs, it helps them. And I think Bainesy is a classic example of that one. You know, once we <laughs> once he realized no one could block his jump hook, his world changed. And uh, he's still crazy, but um, but I think it was important and th- said and probably important for you too. If you had left school and got expelled and not finished year twelve, I mean I, it's it's an achievement. It's a life a life milestone to graduate from high school. Yeah, which then transitioned to college for me, but I mean, my transition wasn't easy. The, the first year at the AIS, I think um, we had a really good tight group, but there were, I guess for me, it was a transition of, of living away from home. You know, I talk about the Wog household that I grew up in with the old man and how strict <laughs> it was and how things were. So now I'm all of a sudden in the world essentially, and that's, that was the beauty of the AIS. I think it, it really prepared you for, for whether you want to go to college or be professional, you were kind of half on your own. You were doing your own washing. So our rooms had a um, – spoke about on earlier on the podcast, our rooms had their own sink, we had our own bed, we had our own rooms and then shared bathrooms and it kind of made you kind of fend for yourself essentially and it was a struggle for me early, I'm not going to lie. Um, no mum's cooking, none yep. of that kind of coddling that um, the washing's all ironed, you have to kind of do it all yourself but that was kind of looking back, that was the beauty of, of being there. Yeah, no, no mum and dad to get you up in the morning to get you on the school bus or to practice or to, to book your appointment. I, I know a lot of people think going to the AOS is easy. Uh, oh, no, it, it's not. It, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Everything is there, the facilities and the infrastructure and the, the coaches and the support staff are there for you to take advantage of. Lots of guys don't take advantage of it, and that's the hard bit. The hard bit is uh, getting yourself organised. I said, you don't have mum and dad. Like the coaches aren't coming around to get you out of bed. Uh, you've got to do all that yourself. Uh, and it is a situation where you're half on your own, but as coaches, we knew a lot of things messed up from time to time and we just you know, pick out what we think is really important and you know, put you back on the track and keep you going. I mean, if we were there and we coddled you like you, you said happens at home, we're not making any better. You've got to fall off the rail sometimes to, to move forwards and you know, you've got to fail and sometimes you look and think, oh, should I pull them up on this one? Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. I'll let that one go but I'll get the next one. And yeah, and I think that's the the difficulty – you can be a really good basketball coach and not be good in that institution, like the AIS institution. You've got to have the other half of it as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think 
I touched on the schedule earlier in this podcast um, when when you weren't part of it, but um, yeah, the scheduling was was that's the biggest kind of culture shock because you're from morning shooting to individuals to then to school, then back, then weights, then um, afternoon team session, and then study hall, and then it's nine thirty, nine o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so and if you don't if you don't have your your shit organized, if you don't you know if you're not organized to a tee, you might miss lunch. That's right. Or yeah. You might miss breakfast, or and that was the biggest thing that I learned from from being there was the time management aspect of it and just um, what you instilled in the things outside of the basketball court, such as going to physio, being on time for that, being on time for massage, doing your proprioception, doing recovery in the ice bath. They were all extensions of being a professional and being a basketball player. So it kind of made you realize that this is this is me still bettering myself yeah. just because I'm not on the court and you really instilled being on time for that stuff. You know, if you're five minutes – you know, if your appointment's at nine o'clock and you're not there five minutes early, you're late. And that stuck with me. My, like I'm huge on being on time now. So that's something that, you know, was instilled from my father, but also then reinstilled by, I think I remember the first time someone on the team, it wasn't me, showed up late. And I just remember you chewed him out for five minutes in front of the group and you're just like, oh shit. Yeah. It's, uh, well, again, my father instilled that in me about uh, the respect of time. You know, there's, there's, there's two units of power. One is money, one is time. And if you're wasting other people's time, then you need the money. to have your ass kicked, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you're really wasting their money. And that was, I remember that from him, and uh, and that 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 is what the pro world is about. Is uh, and I don't know whether I had this thought when you were there or not, but um, felt my job was to make sure that you can look after yourself off the court and coach yourself on the court. Because when you leave the bubble of the AOS, if you're not good enough, you just get cut. Especially in college these days, yeah. now they can cut you. Just get moved on. So. The looking after yourself off the court piece allows you to fully focus when you're on the court. And you have no worries and no thoughts about, oh, I should, should have done this or I missed this assignment. You get all that stuff done, then you can go to basketball and put 100% into it. And then you've got to learn to coach yourself because, honestly, some some programs don't do a lot of coaching. They do a lot of recruiting and they're really good game coaches and that. But as a player, you've got to take responsibility. And that's where I, I really thought you grew in, in your time. And I know you said the first year was hard and we – Obviously, had a couple of run-ins. Yeah, we'll get to that. But uh, but I thought you know, by the time you, know, you you got got to leave the AS and uh, move on, and then through college, and obviously as a pro, you you've coached yourself as much as other people have coached you. And in the end, it's the player's game, and the coach is there to help. I, that's how I see the role. And if I can do a good job early, it makes life easier for other coaches, and and you learn what you want and what you're good at. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, like you said, it's it's not all all glamorous as people think. I think we we had there were a few people that I'm sure over the last 15, 20 years that you dealt with that, that basically quit and didn't want to be there, you know, because it, you think it's you're elite, everything should be nice and cozy, but it's it's actually even harder than being with your club team or being at home. And I think that's where you know some kids just can't cut it from day one and they struggle and they they, they just never really not even I wouldn't say fit in. They just they just can't adjust to that that pace and that what what it takes to be a professional athlete. Yeah, and backing up not just day to day, but within the day, session to session, and uh, and that's the, that's the dif- difference of coaching in a club where you might see them on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night, then they play on Saturday, then you don't see them for a couple of years. You see them, something goes wrong. Six hours later, they're on again, and yeah. you've got to get that thing right before one session turns into a week into a month. Uh, you've got to be able to. And sometimes it's coach-driven. Sometimes you, you let the player struggle a little bit and you, you see that they've got to go through the struggle. Um, and in the end, it's it's so hard to be great because 
it is so hard and lots of people fall by the wayside. And if you're good good enough at sticking out the tough times, most people are gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw it. We saw it with a couple of kids. They, yeah, they went in their shell, and you just they'd, they'd go back to their room, and you wouldn't see them till the next day because they were just it was just too much. And, yeah. and that's part of we we kind of embraced it. We had you know, we always obviously had the Wog Boys on the team with Bloodway and Alex, and so I, I fit in with those guys more. But even like the Damien Martins and, and these guys, it was just such a cool vibe. We had the common room in our block with yeah. the TV, and and a lot of times we'd have eight nine fellas in there just just sitting there talking shit and making fun of each other. And um, I think it. It really, you know, if you embraced it, um, which I struggled with early, I'm not going to lie. Once I embraced it, I was like, "This is the best thing ever!" Like, it's, yeah. and and culturally, you learn about team. You learn about, all right, man, this guy I don't really get along off the court, but he's still my teammate. I kind of yeah. need to turn it down a little bit, and all those little battles within the battle make you a better team and and make make made us to what we were, which we'll talk about down the track of of winning the gold medal with the junior team. Yeah, and maybe not so much for you, but a lot of guys that come into the the institute are. Uh, the big fish in their their own environment, and they've got to come. And they usually come in as a bottom age kid, so there's a there's a group older than them. Before uh, them. Yeah, yeah, and you you've got to go in and start from the bottom again and work your way up. And for a lot of kids, that that's a big adjustment. Uh, they've been told by their their home coaches and their state coaches that they're, they're the best in the world, and and suddenly they're realising they're not. And it's one of the it's one of my bugbears is too many coaches want players to rely on them and they tell them how good they are and they build this sign of false confidence and when their world shatters, if that coach is not there to pick up the pieces, that kid's destroyed. Yeah. And I think you have to get a balance between giving them genuine self-belief but tell them where they really are in the world right at this point in time and where they where they need to get to and um, – as you said, you know, most guys struggle the first year. Those that can survive it really prosper in their second. And I think college is kind of the same. You go in as a freshman and yeah, you're on your get the hell own devices. Out of yeah, yep. And then if you have a good freshman to sophomore spring and summer, you got a chance. You, you kind of got a chance now. And it's yeah, you come in as a freshman that's highly touted. It's even harder because yeah. that 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 junior, that sophomore, that senior who's all of a sudden supposed to be his year for minutes, he yeah. hates you when you come in. Yeah, especially that's the right. same position as him. So you're dealing with all these things, but. Um, one thing with that AIS group, two thousand two, two thousand three, I think we were the most successful AIS group yep. as far as we played in the the Seabull, the, the Southeastern Australian Basketball League, which was a semi professional league at the time. It was very well ran. I, I loved it. Um, it was a lot of NBL players that didn't play a lot. Even some that did would come back and play for their clubs. So we were the, I believe, we were the most successful AIS program. But I also believe we were the most troublesome, um, <laughs> which we spoke about yesterday. As far as as just 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 juvenile delinquent type stuff, just stupid stuff and just getting in trouble and, and causing problems and pranking pranking people. And I spoke about that a little bit at length, but um, I mean, you were the one that would come in on a Monday morning. We spoke about yesterday and you'd, you'd have a voicemail on, on the old Telstra phones connected yep. to the wall where you knew coming in there'd be something <laughs> something waiting for you. I learned that if, it was, if I didn't hear about it till Monday, it wasn't that bad. If I heard about it Sunday night, then there's something really wrong and I'd better get in there. But, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of a weekly thing really. I was, oh, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll deal with this. But, but again, you're, you're dealing with a, a group of highly motivated 17, 18-year-olds um, that want to be good. And part of being good is – and, and I, I believe this for everyone. That they, people want to know where the boundary lines are. It doesn't matter whether it's sport or whatever else. And the good ones want to push them a little bit wider. And that's really how I started to see that group were tr- just trying to push the boundary. I thought we set the boundaries 
pretty clearly. <laughs> and uh, when they got pushed a little bit, that, no problem. And it, it's like when I was a teacher and you walk into class and uh, you say, oh, I want you to write an essay. The first question is, what do you want it on, sir? They want the boundary lines. So yeah. I, I took what I learnt in my short teaching stint, which <laughs> thank goodness was short because yeah. I could get into coaching, and uh, said, okay, these guys want boundaries. They say they don't. But they do; they really do, and then they want to push them a little. So they want to see how far they can push them, and and that's where the good teams are. The teams that are good, but don't push boundaries, never get great. And I and I truly believe that. And I thought the curiosity of you guys, uh, not just on the court, obviously, a lot of this is off court. Uh, so long as it wasn't uh, hurting anyone or stealing anything or breaking anything too badly, uh, like stealing a golf cart, you know, flicking a firecracker, so that's not massive to me. Yeah. Disrespecting people is another thing and um, I think that's so, – you know, everyone says it's a free world, you should be able to do what you want. Yeah, it's a free world, but it's a free world for the other people too and you can't encroach on their freedom and so long as you don't uh, hurt or involve other people, a bit of playful behaviour – I think goes to making a good yeah, basketball team. I think we were past a bit of playful at times. Like we, <laughs> you know, speak, speak about it at length. Like there was, yeah. you know, fireworks at night to wake up the swimmers because we were having battles with them. You know, there was within the AIS back then. There was a lot of different sports. So there's, yeah. there was a bit of a territorial battle with certain sports, and that's what made it fun though. Like it was, it was, and and it got our group closer because like even when one of our teammates would do something stupid. We try to protect them as much as yeah. we could, and and it, and it related back to the basketball court. And I really think it was an extension, both off and on the court. Yeah, and don't worry, the, the basketball program is still held in the highest regard, and people still, to people that have been around through the old AS times into these, um, still talk about uh, the basketball program, but also the teams within that program, and how well liked they were, how upfront, open they were with people. They used to talk to the staff and the the janitors and the the, the chefs and the people that cleaned your room and, and some uh, maybe some of the individual sports are more worried about the individual and they don't maybe embrace all the people that go to help like old long that used to come and watch the the basketball courts everyone knew who he was he saw him every day he would say hello to him and he loved that he, he, you know rose who's the cleaner who's still there when i came back three years ago and i hadn't seen her for 10 years and she came up and she started talking about all the boys and yeah. brought up names and you don't understand how many people are watching and just like being someone being nice to them because yeah. their daily life is probably not that exciting. And so when young guys uh, go out of their way to say hello, it, it means a lot to people. Yeah, and the I guess the the positive of that was with Rosa and, and a few others um, of Macedonian background, so Croatian background, we had a teammate that was Macedonian. I figured out if I was nice to her, she used to work in the kitchen as well at the yeah. um, at the dining <laughs> hall and would clean our rooms. I start I started getting extra towels yep. left on my bed. I started going into dining hall and she would actually cook me eggs on the side, like sunny side up for myself, which was kind of frowned upon. Perfect. So I kind of figured out like just from being nice to someone, you know, talk, you know, talking a bit of shit about something from Macedonia or reading something in the news, what's going on, how's your family? It, it, I got little perks out of it that I, I didn't even want. No, I didn't even want. But she pulled me aside one day and goes, "What do you want? I'll cook you, cook you whatever you want." And I'm getting bacon and eggs, and other people are looking at me like, "How did you get that? Why, why can't I get that?" I'm like, oh, "Don't worry about it. You know, it's it's our little mafia we've got going on." Yeah, hundred percent right, and it, and it costs nothing to be nice. Yep. So 
I guess I think it was mid that year. We had a, a bit of turmoil. A few guys got in trouble. Um, Aaron Bruce. Then we got in a fight with the Dandong Rangers, if I remember correctly. And I got sent home for four days. Um, the story was basically we we finished school for the term. I had no homework. I was in study hall. Told the teacher I have I have no work. Like, can I go? She'd let most of the kids go, but said no. I want you to stay here and do something. And I, I literally have no work. It's the end of term. So. As soon as she turned her back, I left and went and watched the uh, the women's women's uh, program had a game, the yep. WBL team. So I went and sat in a box and, and she came trotting down, found out where I was and, and gave gave me a, an earful in front of everyone and it kind of embarrassed me and I went back at her. And then I remember uh, we had a meeting, I think it was Barry Barnes and yourself and Frank and it was like, you know, we just want you to go home and take some time away for three or four days. And um, I took a deep breath and came back and didn't have an issue after that really. Um, but yeah, I still remember that as that was kind of the, do I want to be here or not? Um, yeah. kind of moment and I guess I was you know I was disrespectful to the lady at the time but it was more I guess that whole being tall sticking out and then getting kind of belittled in front of everyone it just triggered something in me <laughs> that I had an issue with probably still do to this day and went back at her the wrong way but um, I remember going home for three or four days and, and realizing like I'm gonna fuck this up I'm gonna this opportunity I needed to take care of and um, came back and yeah and I think sometimes you, you actually need to get out of the mix it, it's the same as when you're when you're new at the institute and there's so much, there's so much information. We eventually got a little bit smarter and would send the young guys home before mid-year and would send them home. And at, at different, we did it basically on what we thought that player's emotional level was. So when Hugh, Huey Greenwood came here, we just sent him home every second weekend. He was like 12 years old or something. Yeah, and he needed to eventually came to us and said, "Oh, I don't need to go home anymore." Yeah. But the time away, almost by osmosis, allows you to process everything that's going on. I think this situation with you is kind of the same. Is You're in there, it was hard, you're away from home, you've gone through all the things. This blow-up had happened, it's much easier to deal with it when you're away from the situation than when you're in it. The easy thing for coaches to do would be to cut you. Yeah. And I, th I think coaches go to that way too quickly. Yeah. Cut someone's head off, they're done, they're not uh, bad attitude. There's no coming that. back after that, yeah. But that's it, yeah. yeah. Once you've done that, you've done it. And it's much easier to send them home and, and say, go home, have a, have a think about it, tell us what you like, what you don't like. If we need to make some adjustments, we can. But these, this is the bottom line of the ground rule, and we're not going below this one. And if you can accept that, fantastic. And I, I, and I, I remember the incident. I don't remember the actual incident, but I remember the meeting and that going through really clearly and think of when you came back, you were – it's like you came back with a clear mind. That was – that was my recollection at the time was, oh, he's gone home and he's cleared a lot of crap out of his head and now he can get on with getting really good at basketball. And uh, I, I wouldn't advise <laughs> that, that to, to everyone. No, 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 definitely <laughs> but not. I think the, the end result was what we yeah. what we'd hoped it was going to be. Yeah, my journey is very unique. It's, I kind of did it my way and, and we'll continue to get to that. I remember 2002, so when we were when our younger group that ended up being that world championship group and then you had the older group of, of Daniel Kickett, um, a few other guys on that Nick squad. Campbell and, Nick yeah. Campbell and Larry Davidson. And um, I remember the, the trainings that we used to have and a lot of times it'd be the young, you'd take the teams young versus old, yeah, yeah. And especially yeah. towards the end before they went to college, that older group. And I, I remember you like, We'd end up getting to, to blows because oh, yeah. kicks would come down and, and 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 hack me and no one would call it. And I'd be like, okay, cool. No one's going to call it. Cool. And then I'd come down and clothesline kicks and then kicks loves a brawl. So then he'd come hit, and it just one up, one up, one up. And I still remember like 
a lot of practices, you'd say you'd, you'd blow the whistle um, yourself and Frank and be like, you guys are done. We're not training. See you later. And just kick us out and make us go do recovery. Two-hour session turned into 45 minutes. But I, I guess that was the beauty of the group. We just had some absolute pricks on the basketball court. We had guys that competitive. I remember shooting drills. We'd be hustling around trying to win stupid shooting drills in the morning for a morning shooting session. And I guess that's what, what built a lot of those guys, and a lot of those guys had great professional careers. I think Brad Newley is the last man standing from that group, but that was just a testament to, to what the program was and what it should instill with young and old. Yeah, and certainly the competitiveness was something that, and obviously you wouldn't be aware of this, but the legacy of that group was the competitiveness. Like our shooting drills now are as they were in 2002 and three, because that's what's expected now. Because every group goes through and says, well, the older guys teach young guys, and this is prior to that, that wasn't really the case. I mean, a lot of the shooting was just seen as, oh, we're just going to go and shoot. That group made things super competitive. It didn't matter whether it was basketball. I remember the, the indoor soccer games. Oh, of- yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had guys getting injured indoor playing soccer. Yeah. Oh, we're playing indoor soccer. Goes, oh, geez, I hope no one gets hurt here. Uh, Danny Mills running around pretending he's Oliver Kahn, the, yeah. the German goalkeeper, and Blago got into the soccer. Everything we put out there was, okay, it's on. We're yeah. going to play. We're going to play hard and we're going to get after it. And that really became a – I think that changed the program because the expectation now was you're going to learn to compete as well. You're just not going to learn basketball. You learn to compete. And that group was so good at, at one, most of the things competed anyway, but even the groups that weren't quite as talented still carried through a very competitive nature. And I think the program took an upturn um, in that area because of you guys. Okay, so we get to mid-2002. Um, this is an interesting story. I end up signing with the University of Utah. And in true Bogues form, I didn't tell yourself. I didn't tell Frank Arcega. I told no one in Australia. I'd signed a letter of intent with the University of Utah. Now, the stress from, from your point of view was that I was to be the AS program till mid-2003 to going to a world championships, under-19 world championships. So I don't know if you remember that moment, but I remember I remember getting called into the office. You guys read it on like a you know, internet, um, I think on the University of Utah website because it got sent from BA, like what what the F is going on? What is Bogut doing? But talk about that a little bit because that, that goes with my career of doing things my own way. Yeah, it was um, – well, it gets a little backstory there was that the previous group had a kid – Sign at college and go to college, and the um, on on the guarantee, yes, he's going to be available. Yeah, yeah, he's going to. And at the last minute, the college sort of said, nah, "Actually, would rather him here for summer school." And so we had that experience. And remember, at that stage, college was very new to most of it. Yeah, it Aussies, really, yeah. it really wasn't uh, mainstream. Like mainstream. There were a few it. people that went, but it, I was like, "Oh sh- shit, we <laughs> we we can't have this happen again." What what are we going to do with this? Uh, I remember me, and I remember. <laughs> oh, Frank, Frank, the head coach at the time, chewed me out. For I mean, I was, yeah, yeah, and it was. Uh, I can I actually remember saying, uh, oh, "I think I've got to walk out of here before I say something really stupid." Because I, I was, and it wasn't about you hadn't told me specifically. It was, it was more just the the shock of reading it in a situation where where we thought we could have had uh, we just, some sort this of what I want to do, and okay, well, let's manage the situation as we can, and probably in hindsight, we. We, I thought we would have more influence. College, you have no influence over. Once you go into college, the college has you, you. You have no influence over them at all, what you're going to do or where you're going to be or whether you're going to be available or not. The, the, the one thing I always thought was you want to play for Australia. You, you want to go to a world championship, and that's not always the case with kids. They see college as the next step up, but especially now there's under-17s. They may have played under-17, so I've ticked that box of playing for Australia. This is still – 
Uh, the, it's a world championship. You get to play for Australia. We thought we were going to be pretty good, although we at that point we really hadn't done much. But I think as a group we knew we were going to be good. We just didn't know how good. University of Utah, uh, in the end, I thought a uh, good choice because at that stage they were still a really good mid-major. They weren't in a Power 5 league. And now we knew you are going to go and play. And it's like, okay, well, I think he's going to play a lot, so maybe it's not that bad, but let's try and stop it anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, so it, it did end up getting stopped. I mean, it. Um, I ended up not having enough science credits at yep. the time. Um, so my grades were fine, but the NCAA deemed me ineligible to go because I think I did a, I did sports studies, I think, and I think that was a half physical, half social science at the time. Yes. And the NCAA said, it's either one or the other. You can't have it as both. So I was short, I was short one credit. That's right. So the problem being, I remember, and, and just quickly to the University of Utah thing and why I did it like that, I was still kind of anti-establishment. I was still kind of anti-Australian basketball, the, the the actual structure of it to, yep. to an extent. And I was like, I had, we call him Steve, my, my personal trainer yeah. at the time. And it was, you know, you need to get out of here and better yourself, just go to America. And so I, I kind of felt like I just need to get out of here and just go to the States where- where it's it is what it is with basketball, you think it's the pinnacle and the best at everything, and and I think that ended up changing after the, this conversation. So then you'd already you'd already given out the scholarship spots for two thousand and three, twelve spots I believe, and then it come back that I was ineligible to go. So then I'm like, holy shit, what am I going to do for six months now, going into what would be July two thousand three to go to college and talk about? I, I believe yeah. you you put some calls in and, and pulled some strings yeah, and got me in thirteenth spot. This piece you might not know, I'm not sure whether you do or not, but that's that's exactly right. I got a call um, New Year's Eve. Actually, it was New Year's Eve and um, Kerry Rupp and Sylvie Dominguez were on the phone and uh, they're saying, Bogut's not eligible. I said, well, we've given out scholarship. We don't have any more. Uh, and at that stage, you, you were very limited in what you could do with your money. And it was actually a good learning thing for me how to juggle a budget. Yeah. I, I'd just taken over as head coach in December of that year. So this is the first – big monetary thing that I had to really deal with. Um, and whether you like it or not, for the best player you've got, you're going you're gonna to try and do some stuff. Yeah. But anyway, they're on the phone. They're saying, no, Coach Majerus is going to fire us. He said, if you can't get Bogut eligible, you guys are out of here. So they were in well, he sent a Sylvie, world of He panic. sent Sylvie Dominguez on a one-year recruiting trip after that. <laughs> so, so once I got to Utah in 2003, he was my main recruiting coach, uh, was Kerry and Sylvie. I didn't see – I saw Sylvie one day. My whole freshman year <laughs> for one practice, he he basically put him on like go to go to rural Montana, go, yeah. go see this kid. kids that would never going to recruit. He just sent him. He, it was yeah, that was my first four in Majerus. We'll get to that later. Yeah. So anyway, so I got these these two guys on the phone just pleading with me to try and say, oh, well, it just, you realise it's New Year's Eve. I can't do anything today. And they said he wants an answer by tomorrow. <laughs> I said, oh shit. So I call a few guys around, and we had um, at that stage we had a sponsorship from a fruit juice company. And uh, was it Barry? Yeah, Barry Fridges. Yeah. yeah, and uh, the guy who gave the sponsorship unfortunately had passed away. And um, the new guy that took over, and I didn't know this, wanted to pull the sponsorship from basketball and put it into another sport. And uh, so, go in the office just after New Year, and we had all the papers signed and everything. And I'm walking up to get just a 13th scholarship. And the, at the time, the assistant director of the institute stuck his head and go. Don't go anywhere with that paper. And I said, why not? He goes, you've just lost your Berry sponsorship. <laughs> You're 50 grand the whole. Oh, wow. And uh, anyway, look, we, we worked it out. It, it took a couple of days of um, negotiating and a few other things, but we're able to get you back in. And I, and, and I really played on the thing of 
if you want to do good for Australian basketball, this is a guy that's going to go the path. He's going to go the full distance. He's going to be a pro, and he's you know you get your name attached to a, a guy that's going to be a lottery pick, and really tried to blow it up a bit. Anyway, they relented. They gave us a thirteenth scholarship, and you you were back. But it was it was literally that close, and the timing was literally New Year's Day. Yeah, and that's that's how it went, and it's uh, it's another one of those small steps that yeah you, know, you go sideways and do something different. Well, maybe you end somewhere different. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that's when I kind of built a big trust with you. Like it was the first time someone within Australian basketball and within an association or a club or the AIS that actually had my back and was like, I'm going to go to bat for this kid. And it was like, I had it all wrong for the last year about wanting to get out of here. Like this is, you know, so that that was kind of a, a, a turning point with kind of our relationship. Um, we still got into it. Uh, I remember we still, oh, yeah. I think a Seabull game, I don't know if you remember this, but we, we got into about something on the court. And I feel, I feel like you like guys going back at you. I, I feel like- Oh, yeah. I feel like you liked, without being disrespectful, but the "f you know I'm doing," I did this on this card, or I, I came for help, but this happened. I, I think you liked that to to an extent. Um, Absolutely, you liked the guys fight. You didn't like guys that would just go all quiet in their shell. And and we got into it on the court. On the court, I, you subbed me out. I sat at the end of the bench and was giving you nothing. You're trying to talk to me. <laughs> I was ignoring you. And I still remember at the AIS, and you're like, "Get the f out of here. Go back to your room during a game." I'm like, no, I'm not going anywhere. F you, I'm, I'm staying here. And you're like, get out. And made, made a big scene and I refused. And then you ended up putting me back in the game like the next quarter. Um, I had actually forgotten about that, but now you said that I can remember it. It, it, it wasn't a normal thing for you to do, but I, it's, But you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things I do like is, as I said, guys that can coach themselves. And if I can ask you a question about something, if you, if you can't give me anything, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, so how, how can I trust you when you – you'll follow my instruction, but on the court it's your game. As a player, it's your game. Now, it doesn't normally kind of rise to that level, but it, it has done a few times. <laughs> I did it with Big Nate as well, and I was kind of a little scared doing that. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, same deal. He went back and played. And I, I always made sure if if it was – if you really got into someone, so long as it wasn't for an effort-based thing. If, it's, if you're just not given effort, you're not going to play. That's just how yeah, it is. Yeah. But if it's around something that's uh, a miscommunication or just a difference of opinion, I always make sure I put them back in the game because then they have a chance right now to, to correct it. To correct it. Yeah. If you leave it and it's another week before you play, that thing festers for a week, and that's that can't that can never go well. So um, I, I can't actually remember the game. I don't know who was again. I know it was Siebel. I remember it though because we were, yeah. we were near the, we were right near the doors in the AS on the the, the the center court, and you were just pointing at the door and just you gave me two or three. <laughs> firings and said get out get out get out and everyone was kind of like oh shit what's going on and I was like nah I'm not going nowhere I'm sitting here and then yeah got back in the game but look 2003 for me was that was the year that I, I took another leap yeah I felt like um I was somewhat confident in 2002 but wasn't all the way there that's where I really got comfortable with being the best player I really had a I kind of embraced that once I realized it and had had confidence in it and the body of work that I was putting in. And I still remember going to you, coming to you, I'm not sure if you remember, and asking for extra sessions on yeah, yeah. top of everything that I did. Yep. So all the the crazy days at the AAS, I came and said, I want more work, give me more, give me more. And, and we used to meet three days a week, I think, at 6.30, 7 a.m. Yeah, early morning. Before shooting. And I'd be in a full sweat and lather before before guys came in for shooting and and um, guys saw that and then were like, holy shit, this guy's nuts. What's wrong with him? Like I just got out of bed kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of things. That one was, um, not, I wouldn't say we're getting pressed. We we're getting advised to try and try and coach you to be a three man. <laughs> I kept saying, "Yeah, okay, you can be a three. He's a really, really good five. And if he can be a four, great." So I know we worked on some shooting, but we definitely worked on some post stuff and worked on some situational play. What happens if you get doubled? 
But the workload, when guys rolled in and saw you already there, I thought others then started asking and others started turning up early. And, and, and you were always one for if you didn't work hard, I'm going to find a way to show you up. And we had a kid who was really good. I, I thought a very talented young post guy that just didn't work as hard as probably what he should. And I don't know whether you remember this, but it just seemed like every time Lab came into practice, you'd dunk on him. Yeah. Almost as a way to get him to, hey, if you're not going to play me hard, I'm going to dunk on you and embarrass you. And I can remember him off the court one day, just about to come into a drill and your part of the drill hadn't finished and you dunked on him and he turned to me and he goes, I'm not even in the drill and he still dunks on me. <laughs> so, well, if you work your ass off, man, you, this is not going to happen. But uh, extremely talented player and a, and a good guy and all those sort of things. But I guess that was your way of just trying to show him that this is where you got to get to. Yeah, and no, he was he was a very talented junior, and he unfortunately didn't take that next step. But he was he was a household name in New South Wales yeah. at the time, very good player. And I think there's a, a lot of a lot of kids like that that come through the program. But um, yeah, I guess that was I talked about probably from 16 to 17. I took a big jump with training with Steve and doing the individual stuff with Sandringham, and then that next jump in 2003 was was kind of bang. Yeah. So that then transitions onto. 2003 and the World Championships, we take a, we take that basically the whole group. I think bar one was a bar one guy. I think Greg was yeah. the, Greg was the only guy, only scholarship holder that didn't make that squad. Yeah, and we took a guy, took Brad Robbins, and Brad Robbins. on the team. Yeah, so then we we go to the World Championships and and we we didn't think I didn't think we'd I wouldn't say we didn't I didn't think I'd we we win it, but it's unknown. We've never been. We went to Albert Schweitzer tournament the year before, but that was kind of some B teams, and it wasn't always the best national team. So we kind of go into that, and um, I guess leading into that, we beat the Boomers squad. I remember that with Brian Gorgian. They had Matt Nielsen, Shane here. We beat them the yep. first time we played him in a scrimmage. Gorgian's fuming, losing his shit. What the hell is going on? <laughs> and then Nielsen basically took the teeth out of my, my mouth the next yeah, game. That's right. And um, remember that. But yeah, I guess what. Did you think we'd have a chance to win a gold medal with that squad or did you think we'd, uh, we'd, we'd be competitive obviously but did you think we had enough? Yeah, well, obviously you, you always think USA is probably going to be in the gold medal game. I think our, our genuine lack of preparation, we, we didn't have a tour. We went to the US and played some – actually played a good schedule. We played seven Division One colleges and I think three Division yeah, that was a great tour. colleges. That was a great tour. And when we came out of that, I thought, you know, we, sh- we definitely showed enough – to suggest that we were going to be really good. It's just you, know, you get into tournament play and if you win or lose the wrong game or the, yeah. or the points margin might – I sort of certainly thought we were, were good enough to be a, to be a medal team. Um, we didn't do a, pre, a pre-tour, a pre-Worlds tour. We played the three games in Greece once we got there. And once we got there – remember, we'd been to Schweitzer and come ninth. And as you say, yeah. weren't necessarily against the best teams. I know we'd lost to Russia and you know, I always think Russia's gonna, probably going to be pretty good. And we looked at Schweitzer and thought, we've, we've got to get better. We, we have to be a better team than what we were there, and we've got to find some different talent. Some of the players we took didn't make the final team. Um, I know Greece had had the big kid. Yeah, baby shark, yeah. <laughs> we're thinking, okay, if we match up on him, who's, who's going to guard that? That's going to be a problem for us. But in the end, he kind of imploded himself. Yeah. So, we, yes, to so answer your question, yes, I knew we were going to be good. wasn't quite sure how good. I thought the, the Oregon game at Oregon – Oh, that we showed enough in that game to suggest that we're, we're going to be right in there for a medal. Because remember, at that stage, Oregon were coming off a final. Yeah, Luke Jackson, they, Luke they, Rinnell, they were, yeah, Cross they, White. They were really good, and they were a good older team. And it's, it's always good to 
judge yourself against older talent. In a hostile environment. In a hostile environment. Yeah, those kids were nuts. <laughs> Especially when our, <laughs> when our marriage runs back out to the first three, free throw and get his defensive stance. In a one-on-one, you know, yeah. makes the first one, <laughs> sprints back. <Yeah. laughs> uh, Al, you got to run like 90 feet back in and shoot another one, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and they're on newly, telling him to get the weight room. And Yeah, I remember it. It was I an awesome that. tour. That was a great, yeah, a great I, tour. I spoke about, but I spoke about um, earlier that, we would we would go to this, some of these D two schools as well, or even in Gonzaga. I remember they were heckling Aaron Bruce Corn in Frodo, oh. and we had a rule in our team whenever we would get heckled. You probably don't know about this in warm ups when we're doing layup lines. We would find the heckler, and then Aaron Bruce would get in one line, or Aaron, <laughs> Alex Marriage, I'd get in the other line, and, and as you throw that pass to me, I'll just let it go, <laughs> and it'd belt the guy in the face. And that was kind of our our only way of kind of somewhat getting back at the fans that were talking shit because we didn't really get that in Australia. Like you don't get these kind of fans. No. So we got there and we're like, these guys are like going at us. Like this is person. Like we've got guys ready to fight the crowd, and so that was our only way to get back was, was throwing a ball at them innocently. I reckon I saw that at uh, Western Washington. They had a little couch yes, under yep, the basket. Yep. And I didn't – I thought, oh, that guy got sit. That's a silly place to put a couch. <laughs> but now I understand what happened. And because there was no other crowd there. So, yeah. But at Gonzaga – no, the Gonzaga guys still talk about that game. And the guys – like a few of those guys that coached there and they, they actually – had a couple of players used to call them Aussie 1 and Aussie 2 that they'd taken off some of their backdoor players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and they still give their big guy, Richard Fox, who's like, I don't know, 7 1 or whatever. He got dunked on by Big Sammy. Yeah. And they still give him crap about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Days. So it's again amazing the the imprint you have on on people if you go and you do the right thing and you play the right way. And they they thought we played hard and and obviously thought we were good players. They were extremely, and they obviously still are, they were, that was kind of the start of. Their dynasty, they were, they were really good. They had Blake Step and some some guys that were good. And then we played through the Montanas and Portland. And so, I guess to answer your question, having come out of that tour, you say, okay, we've been able to do that against organised Division One guys of three, four, five years older. I think we're going to be pretty good. We've got a chance, yeah. Yeah, we've got a chance, and we really, I think, think the the change from Schweitzer to the world's group, we put in some bottom age kids. And I always thought that for Australia to be good, the bottom ages had to be able to make some sort of impact. Uh, often, your bottom, yeah. Yeah, often your bottom ages are the are numbers 10, 11, 12, and you're sort of getting them ready for – but that was Brad Newley, Steve Markovich, Matt Knight. Yep. I mean, and at Worlds, Stevie was – Stevie was huge for us. Was yeah. huge. I mean, Matt Knight, perfect foil for you. Yeah, just solid. Perfect foil. Could make a jump shot, could rebound, could run the floor. Didn't look like he's going to give you much, and then suddenly he's got fifteen and ten, and yeah. I think surprised other teams. And then Brad, yeah, and then Brad, Brad, yeah, just the athleticism, the defense, and you combine Brad with the two, well, not the two guards, but the guards that could really put pressure up the floor. And I thought those young guys really complemented the older guys and took our Schweitzer group from a sixth, seventh, eighth place group to a medal, yeah, medal group. Yeah, and we ended up winning the gold medal, which yeah. you know obviously set off my journey to. To go on over to college, but um, give us just to finish. Give us the most memorable thing. Obviously, winning the gold medal, but from that two thousand two two thousand three group, whether it's on the court, off the court, what was your most memorable thing that you probably still talk about to this day? Yeah, I mean, clearly winning the winning a gold medal for your country is it's got to be top of the list for basketball achievements and straight achievement wise. I think um, I think the fun of coming into practice is one of the things. I, I still talk to groups. That come through, and there was that group, and then there was a group that, uh, like Delhi's group, was super competitive, but very um, do everything perfectly. And then the group after that was uh, Mitch Creek, Hugh Greenwood, 
Drimic uh, and Iggy Hetzmarovic, a super competitive group. And so when you when you start to think about things as a coach, well, where did where did that competitiveness start? And what are you? Oh, you know, who are your great competitors? Who are you, the other things I think, but just roll into practice and knowing this is going to be it's going to be on somewhere. In the first, the 2001, as you said, it was the older group with, with Kickett and those guys, the competitive nature and the physical play. The next year, it was just the straight competitiveness. I actually don't know that I coached that much. I probably just <laughs> set the drill and said, this is what I want out of it, and there's some parameters around it. You guys figure it out. And I think that's – you You guys got yourself to that point. As, and then it, you know, you, 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 sometimes you have teams that you have to kind of coach – every step of the way and the effort has to be there every step of the way. You guys went way past that. So that, that's my lasting memory of, of that group was it didn't matter what we rolled out. It was going to be competitive. They're going to play hard. They're going to be into it and it's going to be really good fun. I think the um, the overseas travel uh, is something that really sticks out, like going to Greece and the incident with the fake phone and then Reese was dumb enough to get caught the next day on a maybe a Panasonic camcorder. It's a camcorder. Yeah, there was no, nothing inside it. That had stickers on it. I was like, Reese, that, that's not a screen. That's a sticker, brother. That's a and and just the 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 heat. You know, going there was so hot. Do you remember we went to the beach and got sunburned, yeah, got and, sun- and Bevo lost his shit and banned us from going to the beach. <laughs> this was like in the preseason tournament because yeah. we all come. I think we came to the semi final that preseason yeah. tournament, all red and burnt and dehydrated. Yeah. <laughs> he banned us. Yeah. So I mean, those those are the things that stick out as. As much as as anything else, and um, I said the the trip to the states was awesome, and even the Seville road trips. And that they were such good fun. They were so you guys were such good fun to be around. It's a coming in Monday morning, thinking, "What have they done?" It's like, "Yes, no, they haven't done anything. <laughs> yes, they have. Oh, it's not that bad." That, that was, you know, you, it's kind of an adrenaline for a coach too to to know that you guys are up and around. Oh no, no, yeah, I tell you, when when we when we beat the USA. Uh, when we went to play USA in the um, in the quarters, I had no doubt would beat them because when I walked, I was down. I was actually staying around the corner from you guys, down with the Iranians, who <laughs> were playing war games, which was kind of frightening. But um, I had to walk past the USA rooms to get to to where you guys were. There was just a great big pile of pizza boxes and a great big pile of DVDs. I said, "This is ten days into a tournament, and all they're doing is eating pizza and watching DVD. These guys are going to be brain dead." And I went back into the locker room. At half time, you guys left. I must have gone to the bathroom. When I was walking back past the US change rooms, they were trying to figure out the point spread. They didn't know about point spread. Because <laughs> they just thought they were going to win. Yeah. yeah. So going into the game, I thought, they're going to be brain dead. We'll get these guys. 12 was the margin. And it's like, don't you guys know? They're, they're sitting there trying for to work them, out. So I think the margin for us was six, wasn't it? We had to beat the US by six. But if we beat them by more than a certain number, it actually knocked them out. Knocked too. them out. Yeah. yeah, twelve was a margin for them for to them, yeah. to stay in the medals. Yeah, and we were. I think we had to beat them by six. six so we were going in like in. you know we thought we were. It's a tall task for Australia playing the US. We're like we have to That's beat right. them by more than six. Wow, geez, okay. Yeah. And then we end up beating them by twenty, and it knocked them out as well. It knocked them out altogether. So they, yeah, they they didn't know how to work it out. And I'm thinking, okay, well they've had ten days to figure this shit out. Eating they pepperonis. haven't, yeah. done, and they've been eating pizza <laughs> and watching DVDs. And the players were not talented team. There. I mean, they had JJ Reddick, Ryan Hollins on that team. Ryan Hollins, yep. Big kid Paul Davis, Deron Williams on that team. Deron D Williams. Brown. They were they they definitely weren't non talented team. On no, paper. no, they were good. CJ Watson, that they were a really, really good team. And um, but it, it just it does show that sometimes when you're adventurous and curious, uh, it adds to what's going on. And those guys were probably not given a lot of direction. It's here's here's some pizzas and here's some DVDs. Sit in your room and. 
uh, you guys are up eating euros. You're yeah. <laughs> the Puerto Ricans are around the corner at some strange little shop drinking some sort of rum and playing yeah. ukulele. People are out and about, and sport is more than just yeah, enjoying the, the, the cultural yeah, sides and right. embracing the city. And so that would be the things that really remember is that the competitiveness, the the ability to talk basketball with that group too. I think is another thing, and obviously yourself being a major player, and that you can sit down and have a very high-level basketball conversation and, and talk, and as a coach, you can talk and say, well, what do you feel? What do you see and what do you, how do you want to deal with this one? Lots of junior teams either can't or, or won't or have been trained to say the coach knows everything, and I think you guys were, were good. And that's I think that's probably what our blow-up in that game was about. I probably saw something. You saw something different. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, we both told each other to do whatever else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you get over it and go and play, and that's – yeah, so that's it. was certainly an, an enjoyable. And remember, that was that was my first. And I came in halfway as a head coach through that program at the end of two thousand two. So that was my first go. And it's almost like you you're at the top of the mountain first up. Well, and it's Steve Kerr. It's yeah, Steve that's Kerr. right. Yeah, yeah. Steve <laughs> Kerr coming in his first coaching job. He wins a championship. It's like well, there's only downhill from here. Yeah, <laughs> like, but, where am uh, I going? Yeah. yeah. So there, there were lots of great things. As I did. the the stories, I think, and some of them. I know that you probably don't know I know, but there's lots that you know that I don't know. Yeah, no doubt. More. <laughs> and finding them out down the track, you know, you run into Newley because he's always up for a story, or you run into Damo <laughs> or, or Robo, one of those guys. And the, the other thing would be the after, after World Championship celebration was elite. It was hot. Oh, when I got there, I got, I got stuck. Yeah, I got stuck doing the drug oh, you, test. Oh, you did too. Yeah, I couldn't. I had, I've always had a stage fright issue of when someone's staring at me. <laughs> With the um the old fella in my hands, it'd take me ages to pee. So I, yeah. I got I got there halfway halfway through, and you know Matt Knight's almost passed out on the couch, and you know a few guys are already fifteen drinks in, and I'm like, oh, I got to catch up. So I was just yeah, it was. It was well, fun. we thought we were ta- being taken there as part of the basketball. We thought that this was the basketball celebrate. It, they didn't know anything about basketball. That was oh, the, the bazooki, yeah, yeah, at some uh, nightclub yeah, yeah, somewhere bazooki, where yeah, the. Yeah. the the Kylie Minogue. Throwing flowers and all yeah. that. All that sort of stuff. Was, oh, this is great. This is basketball. So we got the bill at the end of the night. It was, there was like, a massive bill at the end of the night. For us, like, like five, 600 euro. We're like, <laughs> we have like 10 euro in our pocket. <laughs> I don't even know how it got paid. I think we negotiated with the dudes and, and ended up getting paid. But um, yeah, an awesome way to finish what what was a really good two years. And I know you'd come on the tour of the year in 2001 uh, yeah. as well. So it was sort of like the end of a two-year cycle for that group and um, – yeah, you couldn't ask for it to end, end in a better way. And then to see you guys go off in their own separate journeys after that, and obviously yours is uh, phenomenal. Uh, you, you go to go to college two years, get drafted number one, and you're off and running. Yeah. And then you get stuck in Milwaukee and it's cold and yeah, everything yeah. else. And, and I came to Utah to, to see you. And that's always good fun too, going to the colleges when guys are at college or in pro teams and catching up and just filling in gaps about what happened in the two-year period and – uh, you know, everyone does their own their own journey and does in different ways, and so that's what that's what this is about. Yeah, that's uh, it. It's awesome. Well, Marty Clark, thank you very much. I just wanted to thank you. I think you were an integral part of kind of my journey, and that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. I think the transition from from being a young man to a young adult before I went off to to Utah, I don't think I could have accomplished what I did in Utah without the preparation that the AAS and yourself gave me. And thank you for your time. Yeah, absolutely. And then then it's finding out. Going from young man, a young adult, to to find out what type of man you want to be, and that that's the real interesting one. Everyone becomes a man at some stage. What type of man you want to be? Uh, obviously, you've turned out fantastic. So, thank you. Thanks. Well-
lots of things along the way go to, go to that. And um, I'm happy that I've had a very small part of um, helping that journey. Appreciate it. Thank All you. All right. Thanks, folks. Once again, a very special thank you to Marty Clark for his time. That interview was um, done in person, which was fantastic. It's always nice to do those kind of things in person when you can. It wasn't done via phone or Zoom and all those other forums that we have to use in these crazy times with the coronavirus. So it was nice to be in the same room and discuss those things. Um, and like I said, one of the one of the most influential people in Australian basketball, at least from a junior talent identification point of view, that a lot of people don't know about. So thanks again to Marty Clark. Moving on from there, end of the World World Championships in July. My family's over in Greece watching those games. They took out a, a loan against their mortgage and borrowed some money to be able to come and, and support me in that um, in that World Championships, which was a blessing in disguise. I really enjoyed it. But it then provided the opportunity for us, myself, my mum, my dad, as a family to uh, go to Croatia. You know, it was it's a two-hour flight, hour and a half flight from Athens. And it was an interesting trip. It was, you know, I didn't realize I'd have other opportunities down the line to go back there. Obviously, didn't know where I was going to play, all that kind of stuff. I was going to the University of Utah, didn't know I'd be an NBA player. So, we thought while we're there, we might get this opportunity again. And we went. It was it was an emotional trip. My, my father landed. It was Keep in mind, it's the first time my mother and father ever went back to Croatia since they migrated in, what is it, the 70s. So, they, they, they hadn't been back since then. And my father got to Zagreb Airport, got through the, you know, to arrivals and, and kissed the ground, the dirty concrete. And um, it was an emotional time. So it was cool to see that. And I can only imagine kind of all the, all the, all the memories flowing through. And yeah, it's an, it was an emotional time. So we ended up going back and then, then starts the visiting for you got to visit all the family members. You got to go to my dad's city, Osijek, and then my mom's uh, village in Karlovac. And that's interesting in itself. So with, um, most people that go back to their homeland, at least in Europe, you know, Greeks, Italians, Croatians, Serbians, they all attest to this. When you go back, you try not to visit multiple people in one day. The main reason is because everyone cooks a feast for you. So if you go to three different people's homes, you try to knock it all out in a day you, and you don't eat at one of those people's houses, you'll hear about that for the next year and, and they'll be embarrassed and they'll shame you and basically force you to eat. So, you generally will put on 10 kilos on, on those trips and we did that. We went to, to the village and spent the day there and visited two or three, um, you know, different family members, cousins and everyone cooked up a feast and you kind of had to just force down food. You literally couldn't eat anymore and they were just bringing out stuff. So, you didn't want to kind of put shame on them by not eating. You know, the whole mentality of our food's not good enough for you, all that kind of stuff when it was just as simple as I just had a kilo of potatoes at the last house um, that we visited. So, but so that was always fun. Did all that, and and then spent a little bit of time with my grandfather, who had um, who we spoke about in episode one, that had uh, moved back to Croatia many moons ago, and I hadn't seen since I was you know five, six, seven, eight years old. So that was cool, and that's where I started up my relationship with my what would be deemed as my half auntie. Um, we're very close to this day. I christened her, her um, firstborn. And Elena and um, yeah, we, we keep in touch uh, very very close. So it's like almost like another sister or sibling that I um, grew up with um, that I met later on in life. So that was that was cool. So we we do all that, and then I only had about ten or eleven days that I could um, I could spend there because I had to then go back to Australia to start my paperwork for my visa to go over to to go over to college. So I flew back solo, left my parents in Croatia. They stayed on for another three or four weeks. I got back to Australia and then had to do all the stuff at the um 
at the consulate, the the embassy, and making sure you know you get all, all the paperwork done and go to your visa appointment. Got all that done and get to the airport for my flight, and they're like, you know, your your flight was yesterday. They only ticket says yesterday, so made that mistake somehow. Don't know how. Um, ended up figuring out and paying a little bit more money. We got on the next flight the next day, and oh, I did solo. A family friend dropped me off, and that was the last I saw of Australia for for a pretty long time. And flying to to the University of Utah, th- um, three big bags, basically my whole anything I could fit and take, and getting off a plane, not knowing who I'm going to meet, not knowing who's picking me up, and I just remember coming down the escalators at Salt Lake City Airport in Utah, and seeing a guy who I'd never met before who was a film coach, Scott Garson, in his in his University of Utah jacket. And, and that was my new friend. Got in the car with him and went to the University of Utah. And the next phase of my journey begun. So that'll be in the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe. Tell your friends, tell your grandma, tell your auntie. Rogue Bogues on Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, YouTube. And appreciate everyone everyone tuning in and following. Hopefully um, you enjoyed this story. The AS was an integral part of, of my upbringing. And I think it's a pretty cool, pretty cool yarn. So thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't already. And we'll catch you on the next episode.